Who you going to grab for this weekend's fab run? I'll ask Vlad Sedler about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 23rd. It's show number 21 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, an analyst and writer at FantasyGuru.com, discussing how to make those tough drop-and-add choices, how to calibrate your fab bidding, his sensational record in NFBC leagues, his boons and banes, a special fab weekend edition, and more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including problems in the San Diego rotation, bad news for Cabrian Hayes and Gavin Lux, and Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including roster churn in Houston, New York, and Minnesota, this week's update of the Blue Jays' bullpen, Shoei Otani's usage, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Francisco right-handed reliever Gregory Santos. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about one good idea baseball could get from European soccer. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, analyst and writer at FantasyGuru.com. Vlad Sedler, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much, Patrick, for having me. I appreciate it. Have you ever been on the show? I haven't. Oh, I've right. been, uh, yeah, even before my my, my days of an, uh, as an analyst, I've been listening to you. So this is uh, almost like a rite of passage for me. Oh, well, that's great. It's great to have you as well. I can't imagine how we missed you for this long, but I'm sure glad we do have you. Uh, before we dig into your analytical work, which is absolutely first rate, I'll just let everybody know at the front. Tell us how you got to your current role as a fantasy baseball analyst at fantasyguru.com. Uh, you know, I've been playing uh, fantasy for a long time since uh, since the '90s, since uh, before my college days. Even just always obsessed with numbers and statistics, and uh, started off uh, doing well in, in some of the national um, overall competitions, Diamond Challenge in the early 2000s. Uh, met some of the folks at uh, RotoWire actually, and got my start writing there, uh, meeting them at NFBC live events, uh, and just um, eventually, you know, moved my way with uh, into. Um, Guru Elite, who was purchased, uh, who purchased uh, FantasyGuru.com, and we've been with them for a few years, and um, running out uh, baseball content now for the third straight year, um, the third year that Fantasy Guru has baseball content. It's been a, a football site for the last twenty-five years. Yeah, it's a big football site for sure, and a lot of uh, football offerings. Before we move on to the baseball analytics, uh, am I correct that you, uh, f- uh, for some time, worked at Baseball HQ? I did actually. It was uh, it was my first first role actually, even before RotoWire. So uh, yeah, I'd met uh, uh, Ron Chandler through uh, Charlie Wiegert because I had played uh, the Diamond Challenge, uh, CDM Diamond Challenge, for many years, and was a friend of Charlie's. Charlie had me uh, join him at the Fantasy Sports. Uh, uh, it was the FSTA back then. 
the, um, the the industry draft, and so that's where I got to meet a lot of the folks. So I think it was in the early early to mid to uh, uh, twenty teens, uh, maybe like eight years ago or so. Uh, and yeah, so got um, got introduced to uh, to Brent Hershey and uh, Ray Murphy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that, that's where, where I got my start. And that's actually where I learned a lot of my, uh, uh, uh a lot of the, the right way to, to write and, and how to, you know, structure content, how to make logical arguments specifically for fantasy baseball. So I owe a lot to, uh, to the editors there at the company. I'm curious, do you find that writing about fantasy baseball makes you a better player or I've, cause I've heard some people say that. And on the other hand, I've heard some people say that sometimes it gets in the way because you've got a, a writing deadline that's interfering with, you know, the, the actual managing of teams and stuff like that. How do you balance that? It's, uh, it, it's not easy uh, to balance. Um, you know, I have, uh, you know, like, like you've got, uh, you know, basically two jobs plus managing my fantasy teams. And this year I have a lot of them, uh, I have 30 total, 12 of them are, are free agent bidding teams, uh, but it actually helps me. And specifically, it helps me on um, because I write a, an annual waiver wire column, the, uh, the the free agent bidding column. And that is just to me very valuable because it allows me to just just to dig in uh, deeper on specific players, on situations. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. I feel like the writing helps me be a better player. Well, Vlad, you're reputation in the fantasy business has been built especially on a tremendous track record in nfbc leagues uh i read somewhere you have almost 40 league wins and a bunch of other cash placings a very successful record in nfbc so let me start with the obvious question how are you hacking those nfbc computers <laughs> yes i have a guy uh, <laughs> and he's got a guy and he basically gets into the servers and uh yeah um no that would have been caught a long time ago i imagine uh, uh, you know, I I don't know what to say other than uh, you know, like a lot of good players who have um, who who are really strong in in understanding trends, uh, do good research, and also uh, are very sort of forward looking as opposed to what just happened, which I think is a is a really big part of of fantasy sports. It's you know it, it's it's more predictive, and that's how we we gain our success. Um, it's you know, doing the little things like not, uh, overbidding or overspending or, or buying high on players that are just coming off big weeks, but we don't see potential for them for the future. And so it's a lot of that. And, and, and then instinct, I think plays a big part of it. And, you know, we can joke about the nickname and the gut, but that's where I kind of named myself that many years ago. I just, you just sometimes you have a feel uh, on, on things, and sometimes it's even as silly as uh, a prospect's coming up, and you don't know much about him, but you're like, that name, I don't know. There's just something about that name. He's just gonna stick. Like I just feel it. And then you know, I mean, doesn't always happen, but happens more times than not. And and so, you know, a lot of times we end up kicking ourselves on decisions that we feel like our instinct, initial instinct, tells us to make, especially if it's like a lineup change or something like that. And then when we go against it we end up hurting ourselves. I feel at least, you know, folks that have a, a strong intuition have been following fantasy, have following baseball for many years, playing fantasy for many years. Uh, they just, you just kind of know certain things. And you, the more you learn to trust your instinct, I feel makes you a better player. You know, I think that's exactly right. But the danger is following your instinct when you don't have that background or that foundation of the experience. I know players, when I was in a home league, we'd get new guys coming into the league and they were always shooting from the hip. 
and which is fine if you know what you're doing, but it's not fine if you don't. And, you know, like you said, uh, the hot prospect comes up and you look at him and you go, well, you know, pretty good skills and good defender in the minor leagues, but not much of a bat. But here he's going for a third of the fab budget because some guy read his name in the paper or, you know, just had the uh, had the good feeling about him. I think that's really important to bear in mind that when you're trusting your gut, ask yourself if there's a reason you should trust your gut. And usually that reason is you've been doing it for a while and, and, and succeeding doing it for a while. Yeah. And, and as, as silly as it may sound, that's kind of what I tell uh, subscribers, especially folks that are asking me individual questions. Uh, it's, you know, if you don't trust your gut, trust mine for now. And hopefully I can you know lead you <laughs> to, the, to the right place and make some good decisions. In the NFBC, how much of the successful ad do you think is based on the drafting and how much is the in-season management, the lineup setting, working the waiver wire and that kind of thing? Uh, that's a great question. It's actually something that I'm uh, still uh, trying to to evolve and figure out because, for example, I did an interview with uh, three of the most successful fantasy players of all time, three NFBC Hall of Famers, uh, Steven Jupinka, Lindy Hinkleman, and uh, Dave Potts, and I got different answers from them uh, on this topic. And um, I mean, f- for me, uh, well, over over past years, I feel like it would be more of the draft. So it'd be like, you know, 70, 75 draft and then 25, everything else. Uh, but I think over time that's balancing out. So where uh, you could say draft is half of it and waiver wire and in-season management is the other half, because especially there's just so much attrition. There's so many players, uh, so much turnover on our rosters. It's now that it's now a case where we're not just turning over the back end of our roster, but you know, we have to make tough decisions with guys uh, even that we drafted in the middle rounds, even in the early rounds. Sometimes uh, guys are going on IL for extended periods of time and in NFBC, you've got a short bench. You've got seven spots. You want to keep those spots fluid and you want to be able to, uh, to, to, to bring uh, players in easily to avoid zeros. I think that's one of the biggest um, uh, kind of the name of the game really is, is, is racking up the at bats, racking up the good quality innings, uh, the, the the closers uh, the say uh, the relievers that get used saves um, the meaningful stats it's it's roto is five by five you have specific stats that you need to attack uh, there's you know many ways to do it but there's a lot of ways that you can fail to do that and one of that way one of those ways is by leaving too many stashes on your bench right you have uh, you know waiting for Kalanick to come up but then uh, you you also have Carrasco who you drafted and you don't want to drop him. Uh, you've got Eliza Hernandez on the bench. He might come back in two or three weeks. Oh, wait, I've got Sixto. Oh, but I love Sixto. Man, I can't drop him either. All of a sudden, you've got no roster flexibility. And when your, you know, Yelich goes down, you don't even have an outfielder to put in for him. And you don't, you keep taking those zeros. You keep stat, keeping those holes and those stashes. Before you know it, you're in eighth place and you're not going anywhere. I got caught in that exact trap this week in, in TGFBI, which is an NFBC run of uh, experts league, and exactly that happened. I had a couple of guys on the bench that I'm waiting on for down the road. Adley Rutschman's one of them and uh, Chris Sale. And I had a million guys on my roster and on my bench who have multiple position eligibility. And I thought the only way this can't work is if this guy gets hurt, that guy gets hurt, and that guy gets hurt all at the same time. Guess what? exactly what happened and i'm sitting here for at least until sunday with no uh, last outfielder so it happens it's a really good point to make Uh, how have you done historically in the overall competitions besides your success in the league competitions 
So that is my goal. I want to win uh, the, the the overall uh, championship, whether that be in the main event, which is the 15-teamer. The there are about 500, 600 people in that main event competition, uh, or the NFBC uh, Rotowire Online Championship, the OC. That is uh, the 12-team format. There are actually about a couple thousand teams in that one, um, even more than that. Uh, that's the one that I've had specifically good success in over the years. Um, I actually went and, and looked it up because you can do this on the site, but basically with players who have won like 50, you know, anyone who's had 15 or more teams, uh, in the 12 team format over the last, uh, you know, eight years or so, I have the highest win right there. Um, so that is, is really my bag. I just really like those 12 teamers. I've gotten into the top 10 overall a couple of times, uh, but have not taken it down, uh, yet. And then in the 15 teamers, um, I started off really poorly. When I first went to my first Vegas live main event, I got absolutely crushed. The next year was tough as well. That was in the, you know, 2011, 2012. Uh, and since then, over the last couple of years, I, I feel like I've, you know, sort of cracked the code and just worked harder at those. And so I've won a few leagues there, um, but have not yet sniffed um, the, uh, the uh, being close to first overall yet. I've read a lot of expert commentary. I don't play the NFBC money games, but I, I do play the NFBC there. So I have a little, very little familiarity with the format and I've done okay. I've read a lot of expert commentary and trying to prepare for those things because I don't do them often that you have to have a balanced roster in your stats. You can't punt any categories because it would kill your chances in the overall contest. And I think that's a reasonable point to make, but it came to me, Vlad, that if you're chasing that overall title, your chances of winning it, even if you're a really good player, are actually pretty remote because there's other good players. There's, you know, you may think you're a good player and you're, you are correct, but Dave Potts is a good player and you're playing against him and Lindy's in there and all those guys you mentioned. And I wonder if there's a arbitrage opportunity to go into it with a bunch of teams in leagues and punt or do whatever you have to that's unorthodox insofar as the overall competition is concerned, like basically shooting yourself out of any chance to win the overall because your goal is to win a whole bunch of the little leagues because they pay, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, it's something that I haven't you know, thought about because for, for me, the goal is, is to win the overall. I feel like uh, as, as for me, I don't get enough of a thrill out of, out of winning my league. Like for it, it, it may sound uh, even facetious, but it's just, it's an accomplishment that, I feel like it, it, I'm trying to move on to to the next level, um, and and even then, I think of course it's possible. But everything, absolutely everything else, has to go right. Like you can, you know, be uh, have almost no saves, but absolutely crush it everywhere else. But everything has to go perfect, and I think that's that's tough to do. I think in a strategy like that, you can almost do like a like a semi punt. Like maybe you know you just wait for all the back end closers or something like that, or maybe not worry about batting average. Uh, but for the most part. There is a correlation with uh, with league standings and the overall standings, even though it's not direct. So I think you still want to try to try to draft as balanced of a team as you can, or at least pay attention to those categories, not let yourself slip too much, uh, just so you have a chance at winning uh, winning your league. What other leagues or formats do you play in addition to or besides NFBC? At this point, I've really I've really toned it down. Uh, you know, I had a Yahoo uh, home league since uh, the early two thousands, and we lost a lot of friends, uh, from uh, having interest in that. So we, uh, we, you know, we disbanded that a few years ago. Uh, so I'm not in that anymore. Uh, I'm not uh, part of the FSTA drafts anymore, uh, which is now the FSGA, uh, I believe. 
And so now at this point, the only thing I have is uh, is Tout Wars, and I'm in a Tout Wars draft and hold uh, that uh, you know it's similar to the draft champions on NFBC. So it's a 50 round, uh, no fab during the course of the year. You're stuck with the 50 guys that you have, um, and I'm in that. And I really like the fact that I'm only doing fab in one places, like uh, one place. Like obviously, you know, Fantrax, RT Sports, there are other really great places to play. Uh, I get a million invites as, as well. People trying to get me to join the leagues, but you know, time is limited as is. Um, I like to just be able to do all my fab work all in one place um, with one style. It just keeps things uh, uh, straight for me. Um, and so that's why I just kind of prefer to do it there. But outside of that, just, just how wars at this point. Yeah. I was wondering about that. If you had a whole bunch of different leagues and formats and platforms, just keeping the mechanisms straight in your head, would be a nightmare. Uh, I, I, I like to know how things work. I like playing in on, on Roto in Tout Wars because I've been using it for years and I understand how to make my drops and ads. I can do it quickly, click, 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 nothing to it. But then every so often I get asked into a league that uses a different platform and oh my goodness, it's like learning how to ride a bike all over again, you know, oh, yeah. and, except the bike's got the wheel in different places and the handlebars are backwards and all, all this kind of stuff. So I'm with you. I think that the if you're going to run a lot of teams, you should try to run them on the same platform and using the same format as much as you possibly can. You mentioned you have uh, a lot of teams. Do you find at the end of any draft period that you have the same players on a lot of those teams? Or, or are you trying to diversify? What players do you find this year, for example, filling roster slots on a whole lot of your, of your teams that you drafted? Uh, so most of my, um, most of my sort of shared player pool or, or guys that I have um, a lot of are really just guys after the 15th round or so, just f- players that I can get at, 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 Easily, basically, because obviously in the uh, in those early rounds, you're sort of subject to uh, draft placement and, and where you're where you're picking from. Uh, of course, with NFBC, you have some control of that because you could set your your con- uh, KDS Kentucky Derby style order and, and figure out where you want to draft from. Uh, I essentially tried not to draft too much from the first few picks, just because I found those guys all sort of similar, uh, Soto and Tatis. Uh, uh, and I was completely fine with getting a, a trout at eight overall. I was fine with a starting pitcher in the first round, which uh, at this point in time seems like uh, is is the right method. Of course, we have a long season to play, so we don't know how that's going to go. Uh, but you know, a couple of guys that I was big on that are from early parts of draft that I made sure to get a, 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 as many player shares as I could. One was Vladimir Guerrero Jr., uh, not just because he's my namesake, but because there was a lot with uh, in, in terms of me waiting, this is now a couple years, waiting for him to have some sort of uh, light bulb go off in his own head about how good he could be when he took himself seriously with uh, his uh, with with his health and uh, being in shape. And so once I saw that light bulb click, him lose the weight and him working towards that, I was basically all in, unfortunately. So everyone, so was everyone else. So the price went up. Uh, so he was one. And then... Uh, uh, Austin Meadows was a big guy um, for me as well, who I thought was incredibly underpriced. He was going in the 80, 90 overall range in uh, in ADP. And I just felt like that was uh, uh, really skewed based on uh, the sort of messed up season he had last year with COVID and the oblique and all sorts of things. So I felt like he was underpriced. And then just in general, players that I have a ton of at this point um, that are from those later picks are like Drew Smiley, for example, uh, lots of Gavin Lux. 
Um, I've uh, lots of Jesse Winker as well. Big believer in Lance McCullers. Uh, got some Wilson Ramos, which has been working out pretty well so far. And then also invested a lot in Aaron Judge, someone I've never really have invested in, in over the years. I just figured at some point he's got to have one fully healthy season. And when he does, he mashes. I mean, he's, you know, StatCast's uh, darling. So uh, this year I have a lot of Judge as well. I'm always curious when somebody says, this guy's hurt every year, but one of these years he's going to be healthy. And you think to yourself, yeah, why? <laughs> you know, if, if anything, uh-huh. this guy's proved that he's kind of brittle. But it it could happen. And and usually the advantage is that people perceive him in that injury way and and that drives down the cost of rostering him yeah exactly that's the case with a lot of these i mean for me a big part of success in drafts is spotting the the market inefficiencies and so a lot of times uh, adp is is a direct reflection of the previous year's results so a lot of times if you don't have the context for why this person had a bad season uh you know were they injured missing time you know stuff from you know with family uh, just what happened last year, and especially this past season, the 60 game season was a really small sample to take from. And so, you know, that, that really, I, I feel like is a big part of, of the game. Like when, when we first start drafting, or at least when I first start drafting in December and January, I'm looking at a board and I'm like, wow, I can't believe this guy is going this late. Or, you know, why is, you know, why, why is Teoscar Hernandez just because of those couple hot months or Zach Plesak, for example, two guys I didn't draft. Why are these guys going like so early based on this small sample? And then on the flip side, wow, I can get CJ Crone at 325 overall, like 21st round in a 15 teamer. I'm all, I'm all over that. And that was before the Colorado thing. I figured he'd sign somewhere. Little did I know I'd hit the Rockies lottery on that. But, you know, that's just one example of that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Vlad Sedler from FantasyGuru.com. And Vlad, just the other day at your site, you had a column about the idiosyncrasies of 12-team leagues. You're talking about 12-team mixed leagues, of course. At first, you said that they're a different animal than 15-teamers. It seems to me, as somebody with very little experience in 12-team, that the biggest difference is going to be the depth of the free agent pool. But that, you said, creates issues of its own. What are those issues when it comes to 12-teamers? Oh yeah, there are twelve teamers. Is uh, you know we're drafting twelve uh, twelve teams, thirty rounds. That's uh, it, it's a three hundred sixty players. That's a big difference from a player pool in a fifteen teamer with, uh, with with fifteen rounds and four hundred fifty players. Just a massive difference, and all those guys that overlay is sitting there available on the waiver wire, and so it's incredibly difficult to make those uh, very crucial decisions of you know who to pick up and more importantly, who to drop, because a lot of times we're making these, these, these mistakes uh, that are um, based on what's just happened over the last week or so. Right. I mean, it, it's early in the season. We just drafted all these guys. Like, are we really going to be drafting or dropping somebody that is still in, has a good lineup slot? You know, the weather has been bad. Like what, what are the reasons why we're, we're giving up on this person so early? Uh, but really the problem is there's just this overwhelming, uh, group of talented players on the pool at a 12 teamer. And what happens is a lot of times we're dropping, we're continuously like, you know, trading guys, uh, dropping and adding, dropping and adding and spending big chunks of our fab budget, but we're not actually making our rosters better. What happens is we're just, we're trying to play the, you know, keep up with the stats game. But if people are looking backwards and you're not catching on to players at the right time, you can always be, basically buying in on 
uh, on a bad week, if, if that makes sense, you know? It does, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I've often heard the fantasy baseball market likened to the stock market, and I don't generally think it's a, it's a fair analogy, primarily because there's only one Mike Trout in every league, but everybody can buy you know U.S. Steel if they want. Uh, but in this particular instance, I think it is. There's an adage amongst professional investors or experienced investors that says, don't try to time the market. It's virtually impossible, and that the, the best way to handle things over the long run is to pick good businesses and ride them. And I think the same thing is true. Of course, there are going to be times when you have to cash out, but I think you really hit the nail on the head when you're talking about, we all focus really intently on what guy we want, the new shiny toy, but we're not paying enough attention to the cost, which is the guy we have to drop, plus the fab investment that has to be made. I think those are really important. And and you talked about being in a league with a bad manager who panics early and drops a good player but then you said that can lead to problems. Uh, dropping a good play. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course. Um, you know, this, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's really easy to make, you know, big mistakes. You know, for example, the, it, are we talking about the Conforto thing that I told you about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a guy that, that reached out to me and said, Hey, uh, Michael Conforto was dropped in my league and, you know, I have $79 left of my hundred dollar budget. And, you know, what should I bid? And for me, it, it's difficult to answer that in a vacuum. You can't just tell if you don't care about somebody uh, or about actually helping someone, then you can just say, oh, bid all of it or, you know, bid bid 50, you know, but I wanted to help. I didn't want him to waste his fab money. And, uh, and so I had questions for him, you know, it was, it, it was, it was basically like, what is, you know, for starters, what's the depth of the league? Is it a 10 teamer or is it a 12 teamer? Is it a 15 teamer? I mean, that for example, makes a big difference uh, in a, in a 10 teamer. Uh, somebody of Conforto's ilk is, is more easily replaceable in a 15 teamer. You're going to have to spend a, a, a prettier penny for, for uh, somebody like that. Who's a sixth or seventh round pick. Um, then I'm, you know, I'm asking him, you know, for me, it's important to know uh, the history of bidding in this league. Like what, you know, if this league has been around for a few years, how do people, typically react to a talent like that dropped? Is this a common occurrence? If so, it's less remarkable to this group, to this field that somebody like Conforto has dropped, and he can probably slide through the cracks. So this is another portion of the analysis that's important for me. And then the other thing I, I asked him is, uh, do you have any Mets fans in your leagues? Are there any diehard guys in your leagues that are Mets fans? Because I think that's important too. You know, I mean, you know, uh, us drafting against somebody that is a, a, a Red Sox fan, and, you know, Kike Hernandez gets hot and, and somebody drops them, you, you know, bet your button, somebody's going to go ahead and, and, and that Boston guy is going to go ahead and spend all their money or whatever it takes to get him. They want their Boston guy on their team. Same thing with the Yankees guys, the Cubs guys, doesn't matter what team. So for me, he let me know, these are all Seattle guys. I don't think anyone here necessarily like loves or has to have Conforto. Uh, and ended up working out. I think um, recommended him thirties, somewhere in the thirties, which might even be a little low. Uh, he got him for like 28. And uh, it ended up working out. So there is a plus to being a Pittsburgh fan, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you play in those NFBC online championship leagues, the OC leagues. Uh, you looked at some recent drops in the leagues you're playing in, and you analyzed them in groups. There's good drops and there's bad drops. And I'd like to look at a few, starting with the good drops. And you said those good drops come in five categories. What are those five categories of good drops? Uh, so the first two are the the, the fringe uh, uh, 
uh, IL hitters and the fringe starting pitchers. So the, the, the fringe IL hitters are basically the guys that uh, they're easily replaceable in a 12-team format. Uh, and they just hit the IL, even if it's a short stint, whatever, you need that bench roster spot. You can easily look ahead to the upcoming schedule and set your bidding priorities based on who can replace that person in the short term, either in your starting lineup or just in case you're going to need him. And so a lot of times, the, you know, these guys are easily replaceable. Like there's no reason to hold Chris and Pache, you know, Pash Pache in a 12-teamer. Uh, Tim LoCastro, great, speed, fantastic. He just dislocated his finger. He's on the IL. You don't need him. You can go ahead and cut him. I think it's the same thing with the starting pitchers uh, on 12 teamers. It's a lot easier to get somebody who can help. Uh, you don't have to go after the, uh, you know, the, the Tyler Anderson's of the world in a 12 teamer. There are better starting quality pitchers, uh, starting pitcher quality available, which means, you know, for this past weekend, I didn't mind drafting Mike Miner or Carlos Martinez. If I don't, if, if I don't feel comfortable starting them in my roster, even for a, a two-star week, then there's no reason for them to be on my team. So those fringe starting pitchers, I can continue to churn. So that's two of them. Uh, third catchers, there's no reason to carry them. You know, in a 12-teamer, you lost Max Stassi this week. You're not going to hold Max Stassi. Uh, you know, people aren't even holding Dalton Varsho in a 12-teamer waiting for him to call to be called up. So um, yeah, maybe Alejandro Kirk is the one exception, but even then, uh, he's not playing every day, so hard to stash that. Um, and then the last two, are the lost closers, the people that have we drafted for their jobs, Archie Bradley, Anthony Bass, Emilio Pagan, and they lost their job. There's no reason to hold those guys. I think even James Karinchek, uh, the people need to be able to, to separate the fact that they spent an eighth round pick on him and recognize he's not the closer. He's really good, but he's not the closer. And in a 12-team format, you, you just can't hold that. That doesn't play. So that's the fourth category. And the fifth are the part-time platooners. Those guys, like, man, I love me some Sam Hilliard. But I can't play Sam Hilliard in a 12-teamer because the Rockies aren't even playing him. So a guy like that, a guy like Jonathan VR, unfortunately, you can just go ahead and cut him in a 12 and just move on. Playing time is so important in those in those leagues. The common wisdom is that it's extra important in only format leagues, American League or National League only. I think it might even be more important in these 12-team leagues with very, very broad uh, player pool availability because everybody's going to have a lot of counting stats. You can't afford to let any of your players be sitting there as halftime players or even three-quarter time players unless you're, you suspect that they're going to be able to generate that much offense with that less playing time. Exactly. It's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. You can get away with it to an extent in deeper formats and in the 15-teamer. Everybody's going to have some platoon guys just because the, uh, the, the depth is, is, is deeper, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you also said there are occasions where you have to drop a player, even though you actually might like to keep him, or even multiple players because of the 12-team angle. Uh, you mentioned one such player, Colton Wong. What was the calculation you had to make with him? Man, that was uh, that was a really difficult spot for me. Um, I and of course he's back uh, as expected. And if he has a big weekend, of course uh, he's going to have to jump in the competition and, and fight for him to get him back. Uh, but I'm not even sure if I'm going to need him. Um, we'll see. Uh, the The problem there was the my middle infielders just end up getting getting hit pretty hard. Lost Gavin Lux to the IL. Me personally, I find Lux could, could be wrong here. Maybe it's my you know my Dodger cap is on, but. Uh, his issue at the time was less concerning. It was a wrist injury. Um, it was wrist discomfort, really. And they just put him on to, um, you know, more out of a as a precaution, whereas Colton Wong at the time had an oblique issue. And to me, 
that it was a much greater issue. And at the time of dropping him, there was no timetable. We weren't sure. And we've seen people, how long they take to come back from the, from the obliques. And we know how it affects them at the plate, their swing, their power, everything. And so uh, for me, it felt like a point where I couldn't hold Colton Wong any longer in 12 teamers. Uh, as soon as I did the very next day, the word comes out that he made his miraculous recovery and he'll be back this weekend. So he's going to be playing this weekend. Uh, hopefully he keeps it quiet and uh, doesn't do very much. So I can maybe grab him back on the cheap. You also said you felt forced to drop Framber Valdez, same sort of thing. Yeah. These are constant lessons um, that I'm learning on my own. Uh, so Framber Valdez, he was dropped in our league, uh, you know, after week one or week two, whatever it was. And he wasn't a target of mine, but I put him on a list of conditionals. And so that, that second week when everyone was ag- aggressive and, and, and placing bids on these starting pitchers, he was like my fifth conditional and I ended up picking him up. Um, and we didn't really know the timetable at that point. Um, and then the following week, there was still no timetable. It's like, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's pitching, um, you know, he's at least trying to throw, but we don't know how long he'll be back. Those type of players are very difficult to wait for in 12ers. We, we, we don't even know when they do come back, if they'll even be any good. You know, you can wait for them all this time, and then you end up getting hammered um, by them in their first couple starts because something's not right. So this is a good lesson for myself. Uh, you know, maybe you should have put someone on my list and not wasted 24 bucks uh, on a bid there on somebody that I could actually use on, on my roster. Um, I should have known it at the time when I was putting them on my conditional list that chances are I was probably going to drop them the next week. And if that was the case, I probably should have put like four or five bucks on them. Moment of weakness. And we have a question from Twitter on this topic. A guy in a 12-team league, just like we're talking about, he has seven starters and four closers, but he's ninth or worse in the decimals. And and if anything, he's going to be headed in the wrong direction there. And he wonders, uh, J-Rod is his name, how early would you panic on the decimals in this kind of situation where you started thinking you have to start dropping starters to get those high-skill Lima-type middle relievers, if ever? Yeah, I think it's I think it's still early. Of course, uh, a lot of uh, you know people that that got Corbined, uh, you know, police act and 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 the like. Um, that will sort of work its way over time, but it's a matter of how aggressive you are in getting the right uh, starting pitchers now into your roster. If, if you do feel like there's some sort of issue, like in in twelve teamers, just over the last couple of weeks, there were some guys, you know, the Carlos Rodon, Stephen Matzes of the world that. Uh, guys that have shown high level of skill prior, but have spent some time injured or just, you know, kind of uh, waddling. And now they're back into legitimacy. So keeping an eye out for who those guys are, uh, adding them to your team, I think now to try to help with ratios is, is, is more important because um, it, it's difficult. You can't play the middle reliever game role all year. And as we know with middle relievers, even those guys tend to fail us a lot of times. The the great middle relievers of one season don't necessarily transfer over into the next. And as I said, you also talked about looking for players that other managers have dropped that you saw as opportunities to pick up. Uh, what did you like about, I like this phrase, a rage drop on Patrick Corbin as an example. You just <laughs> mentioned him because he has been pretty awful. What are you seeing there? Uh, I mean, this happens every year and, and this is a good reminder. I, I feel like I should take notes for myself to read, uh, like, you know, like a, like a, a diary of sorts to remember 
certain things in April and to not to go too crazy and overspend in April because they're always during the course of the year, they're going to be rage drops, people that are mad about somebody that had one off start or, you know, a slow week hitting and they get dropped. And these are talented players, uh, you know, like Conforto in that home league we talked about uh, that we need to save money for during the course of the season. We want to have the advantage in, in, bet- in bidding them uh, over our competition. We want to have that upper hand. Uh, but yeah, the rage drop is just something, you know, I think I uh, saw the term on Twitter, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, when somebody gets hit hard with a, uh, uh, you know, with a bad start, you're, you, you don't want that on your team anymore. You, you just, you're like, I don't want to deal with this. I, this is not my problem. Let me just drop it. Um, of course, as it works out more times than not, if a guy isn't injured and the guy's velocity isn't down, like was the case, apparently the case with Corbin after those two horrific starts, he went through a gem against the Cardinals. And now I'm guessing those people that drop Corbin are like, oh, wait, wait, why, why did I do that? So first thing I always do midweek is I'll go back to my 12ers, my 15 teamers and see who people dropped and kind of notate who those guys are and figure out, hmm, am I going to be bidding on them this week? I compare them to my worst players. Like for example, you know, uh, AJ Pollock, Aaron Hicks were both dropped in, in, uh, in 12 teamers. I'm going to compare those guys against my worst outfielder. Uh, and figure out whether it's worth the upgrade. The other thing I'll do is I'll go look at their upcoming schedule. Uh, is uh, you know are the Dodgers going to be playing in course soon? Are they you know playing at Baltimore or something cool like that? Or are they just going to face you know Degrom and a bunch of difficult pitchers that maybe it's not worth grabbing a Pollock for my lineup and, and, and overspending now? Um, so a lot of times people will just bid based on the name brand. It's like oh it's uh, it's Aaron Hicks. He's sitting third on on the Yankees. Okay. But where is the, you know, what's their schedule coming up? How is he in comparison to your worst outfielder on your team? And if he's not that much worse, how much are you willing to pay for him? Like for the name brand, are you going to spend 80 bucks just to, you know, have the name Hicks on your roster and just hope he starts going off? Or is your, uh, you know, Robbie Grossman uh, good enough? Yeah, when it comes to the idea of looking ahead to the near-term schedule, don't you think it's also important to look at the longer-term schedule? I was listening to a podcast the other day where the the people that were having the discussion were talking about, you know, it's easy to, to look at, at a pitcher and say, oh, Coors Field this week, I'm not interested, and ignoring the fact that the next 10 starts after that are all against Detroit or in Kansas City, maybe it's an American League Central guy, and, and all of a sudden you're missing out on, on a long-term opportunity because you get trapped in that short-term view. Or do you think, I'll ignore him for the week in Coors when I don't necessarily want to start him, and then I'll just hope that he survives the process and I'll get him next weekend? So there's a there's a balance to that. Um, I, I I look beyond just the upcoming week or even the two weeks. I'll just if I really want to dig into someone, uh, like like I did for our booms and banes that that we'll be doing later, uh, uh, booms and banes. I took a deeper look into some of these guys to figure out whether I really would want to add them or drop them, uh, because. It, it, yes, it is important. A lot of times these schedules don't line up for a pitcher, especially with, you know, early in the year, uh, somebody could get skipped over. There could be a rain delay. And all of a sudden this beautiful looking uh, two start week that they have is now, you know, completely moved into something else. And so th- that shifts and changes, but sure, it is still good to know what, uh, you know, what type of um, uh, matchups they're going to have. But a big part of that is also understanding where they play within a, within a division. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of good pitching in the, in the NL East. And so maybe an NL East uh, hitter 
that's coming up and playing their division a bunch uh, may not be as valuable as an AL East guy who you know is probably going to play in these fantastic hitting parks. They're going to play in Baltimore, uh, Camden, and Yankee Stadium, and, and Fenway. And there's just a much higher upside for uh, for those stats. So I think you, you look at the short week because you can't really predict the future too much after that. I mean, you know, what if the guy gets hurt? I mean, like anything can happen. Um, but you also want to have some sort of picture of the next couple months and what the schedule is going to look like overall. Vlad, I thought this was going to be terrific, and it certainly has been. Going to let you towel off and catch a breather, and we'll get you back in a few minutes. We'll talk about waivers and fab in 15-teamers, and of course, we'll have your boons and banes. Vlad Settler is an analyst and writer at FantasyGuru.com. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the NL News. Ray has the AL. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis, Matt Dodge looks at the center field situations of all five teams in the American League Central. In the Arsenal report, Tanner Smith's new column looks at pitch mixes for three pitchers, including Joe Musgrove, Carlos Rodon, and Patrick Corbin. And Nick and I will be discussing Tanner's Corbin analysis in the National League Market Watch coming up later. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey discusses weighing skills versus roles when you're setting your pitching lineups. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes. News updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. Buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. Fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse. Injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. And of course, groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like player projections. They're updated every day. Daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. You add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Washington. A bit of a surprise note to Juan Soto, the all-star first-rounder in fantasy drafts, uh, sent to the injured list. He has a bulky shoulder of some kind. Uh, they recalled outfielder Yadier Hernandez. I don't think Hernandez figures into it a lot, but what's going to happen with the Nats roster now that their biggest slugger is on the shelf? Yeah, you know, as you said, it was really a surprise. He was in the starting lineup for April 20th and was scratched barely an hour before game time. Had been in a bit of a funk recently as he was uh, had an 11, 0 for 11 streak that he finally snapped on April 19th. But overall, Soto was still hitting well. 296 expected batting average, 139 expected power index. Not known right now how much time he may miss. Hernandez was up earlier this season, going one for seven. Also had 29 at-bats in 2020. Had five hits, including a homer. Andrew Stevenson uh, is likely to be the main playing time beneficiary. So far, he's six for 25 with a homer in 2021. 15 for 41, two homers in 2020. And he may be, Stevenson may be worth a flyer in deep leagues if you're looking for a short-term replacement for Soto. 
Yeah, I like Stevenson's chances better than I like Hernandez. Looks like they're just a guy they're going to come up and have him fill the roster spot and sit on the bench barring anything else. More bad news in Washington. Steven Strasburg placed on the injured list. He's got right shoulder inflammation. That's not good news for any pitcher. Uh, the Nats recalled a right-hander named Paolo Espino. What do we know about this situation in Washington for Steven Strasburg? Well, you know, and this is no, no nothing new for Steven Strasburg. He arrived in Washington in 2010 and has now been on the IL in parts of nine different seasons. The Nationals are hoping that Strasburg's IL stay will be short, but then we've heard that one before. Uh, Strasburg's replacement on Washington's April 18th starter was 34-year-old Paulo Espino. He was a 10th-round pick by Cleveland back in 2006. Uh, and before that start, he had thrown 24 major league innings in 2017 and another six in 2020. So the start was okay under the circumstances, lasted 4.1 innings, five hits, a walk, uh, struck out three. Uh, unfortunately, two of the hits were solo home runs, so uh, the, the overall ERA wasn't too good for that start. So until we have a better idea of what they're doing, it's hard to recommend uh, Espino to uh, fantasy managers. Uh, really unclear exactly what Washington is going to do in that situation at the moment. I guess we'll talk about Patrick Corbin in that Washington rotation a little later, but right now more bad news in a different rotation in San Diego. Uh, Nick, we talked last week about left-hander Adrian Morahone going on to the IL. Worst news confirmed this week. He's going to have Tommy John surgery. He's done for this year. I guess we'll see about next year. And then uh, right-hander Denelson Lamette left his Wednesday start after just two innings. He had the dreaded right forearm tightness. Jock Thompson covering all this stuff for Baseball HQ's playing time today. Uh, what's the story in the rotation of a pennant contender in San Diego? Well, Lamette was very impressive through two innings pitched and 29 pitches. He threw 19 strikes, four strikeouts, a hit and a walk, uh, but then was pulled with forearm tightness. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we worried about him earlier. He, he opted not to have surgery in the offseason. Uh, that could still be a possibility. But at the moment, uh, they say that he may be back after as soon as he's eligible off the, off the uh, DL in 10 days. So don't think they're going to need to send him for an MRI. So Lamette may be out only short term, uh, certainly would not drop him if you've got him on your roster. Uh, at the moment, Ryan Weathers is back in the rotation. He certainly has an opportunity, uh, and the outlook looks better than, than the last time he was in. Uh, Weathers started on Thursday night against the Dodgers uh, and had a very impressive outing. So far, he's pitched two games, two starts. Uh, Noah has not yielded any earned earn runs in nine innings pitched, all of them against the Dodgers. Nine strikeouts, three walks. For the season, Weathers has a 0.59 ERA, uh, although 3.27 expected earned run average, 115 BPV. Looks like he could be a good short-term substitute at 21 years old, maybe a guy you want to sneak on your roster because uh, certainly he's going to be the first one they call on even after Lamech comes back if there are other injuries. Nine innings versus the Dodgers and not giving up any earned runs. I mean, it's a short sample, I know, but it's a pretty impressive short sample. It's a very impressive short sample against the Dodgers. I mean, that's uh, that's that's fairly amazing, especially especially the Thursday night start when it was the second time they'd seen him, right? Uh, and still didn't give up any earned runs in, in six innings pitched. They also have Mackenzie Gore, their top pitching prospect, kind of lurking around uh, in the background still so far. Do we know anything about Mackenzie Gore's prospects for promotion? Like to the extent that should we in leagues that allow us to to pick up non-roster uh, prospects. Is this a guy to stash now in the expectation that he's coming up relatively soon? 
I think so. I mean, I you know, Mackenzie Gore is certainly an outstanding prospect. I think once we get past any kind of service time concerns, that he's more likely to be up than, than not. So I would stash him if he's available in your league to do that. Uh, meanwhile, Ryan Weathers, I looked him up on the Baseball HQ org charts. Uh, he's a uh, number five on the San Diego prospect rankings, an 8C prospect. I think that means uh, like a real solid major leaguer with a 50-50 chance of getting to that ceiling. So somebody else that's worth looking at, as you mentioned, uh, in Miami, outfielder Starling Marte went on the IL with a left rib fracture. Ouch. Anybody who's ever had a broken rib can sympathize. The Marlins recalled outfielder Lewis Brinson, blast from the past, uh, from the team's alternate training site. Phil Hertz on the story for Baseball HQ, and seems like we've been waiting forever for Lewis Brinson to achieve his fantasy potential. Nick, is this time going to be the charm? Well, you know, we have indeed, and, and you never know. I mean, Brinson is, uh, as you said, we've been waiting forever. It sometimes takes a long time, and this might be the charm. But he's failed over and over again at the major league level. So uh, I, I think what I would do at this point is just kind of keep an eye on him. And if, if there's an evening when he suddenly breaks out, maybe worth, uh, if you've got a, a, a bench spot, you can put him in. Uh, slip him in that and look to see how he performs this time, given he, he may get some extensive playing time. So Brinson's a guy that certainly has some potential, but right now he's not started very well. So far, two for 18, uh, one run scored, no homers, no stolen bases, hitting, hitting uh, 111 at the moment. Uh, certainly not someone you want in your active roster. No, that's for sure. And uh, just looking at the depth chart, they do have a lot of options in Miami. They built one of those kind of rosters that has lots of guys who can play lots of positions. So this may be a pathway to playing time for guys like Garrett Cooper, who's kind of a bit blocked at first base by Aguilar. You've got the possibility of a guy like uh, John Birdie, who's kind of a utility player, plays a lot of infield, but uh, also has some outfield experience. Maybe that's a pathway to playing time for him, and that's a stolen base play. Uh, Adam Duval has been down for 65% of the playing time, but that's with Marte taking up 80%. So it looks like there are going to be a lot of moving parts here, and uh, that doesn't even include guys like Monty Harrison and, and that ilk of player. Right, very definitely. So they certainly have a lot of options. Uh, Bertie's a guy that, that I like a lot in terms of, as you said, the stolen base potential, and batting average hasn't been too bad the last couple of years, but at this point isn't getting to play much at all. So uh, certainly a lot of moving parts. I'd keep an eye on several guys that may be worth picking up as the uh, as the situation gets more clarified. And you know, Nick, uh, one of the things that we try to encourage fantasy managers to do if they're really being serious about trying to win a league or being competitive in a league is watch those box scores because you don't want to be waiting till Friday to try to figure out, you know, who's doing what and what's going on in the team. It, just get in the habit every night of checking the box scores, at least of teams like Miami where there's playing time situations that are really in flux and check and see, is John Birdie getting some playing time all of a sudden? You know, what are they doing in the outfield night after night after night? And, uh, I mentioned this with uh, Vlad Sedler in our interview in this week's show about how playing DFS can actually help you be a better weekly type player because you're kind of looking at those rosters every night and you're trying to figure out who's likely to play, who's likely to do well, who is playing and doing well, who is playing and not doing well. All these kind of things can really inform a decision and give you the heads up on a team like Miami when they're making their moves to try to recover from this Starling Marte injury. And a broken rib, we should point out, Nick, 
is no easy matter to recover from. It's right in the middle of your body. You know, we know people have trouble with those oblique injuries because of all the torsional force of swinging the bat and even throwing the ball. This is a very fluid situation in Miami, and uh, uh, the canny fantasy manager, I think, has opportunities to exploit the opportunity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you, you, you've got to keep up with the box scores if you really want to win on a daily basis, even if you only have a weekly waiver waiver claim because it's hard to catch up the night before uh, be, simply because there's so so many moving parts on so many different teams. Speaking of moving parts, in Pittsburgh, they had a Rookie of the Year candidate, Cabrian Hayes, playing third. Very, very well thought of prospect. He was on the IL recovering from a wrist injury. They kind of had a timetable that would have had him coming back around now. But he's had a setback. Now he's going to be out longer than they first expected. I don't even know if they now have placed an uh, estimated time of return. So they selected third baseman Todd Frazier, another blast from the past on Thursday, to join the team's Major League roster. And they designated uh, uh, Dustin Fowler, an outfielder for assignment. Uh, Rick Green covers the Pirates for playing time today. Uh, what's the outcome here for Pittsburgh and for curious fantasy managers? Well, and Frazier went into the lineup the Thursday night as a DH because they're playing uh, they're playing in Minnesota, so a, a DH is necessary, likely to stay in the lineup through Sunday, um, and then we'll see after that. I mean, this is really, as you said, a blast from the past with Frazier. I mean, we're looking at a guy that's. Uh, uh, that's got some age on him and uh, hasn't uh, 35 years old at this point went over four in his first uh, his first night back but uh, it's been a while since Todd Frazier was really very relevant uh, hit 236 in 2020 and 157 at bats four home runs so uh, you know some of the, I, I, it's not a guy I'm going to put on my roster right away um, expect at this point the Pirates to ship Brian Reynolds to center field use a combination of Philip Evans and left with Eric Gonzalez well, Modifo and Kai Tom as other possibilities. Uh, Evans is hitting 293 with four homers and six RBIs. He certainly deserves roster consideration at this point. Um, made a brilliant, a brilliant defensive play the other night that actually saved the game in, in, their, in their contest against Detroit. Uh, and that, of course, keeps a guy in the lineup. Uh, so I, I think Evans is somebody to definitely look at. And he may well stay in the lineup even once uh, Brian Hayes returns uh, because he's not only been playing third, but playing in the outfield. Yeah, a lot of, uh, at the end of a playing time today report, oftentimes there'll be a, a box that shows all the players who are gaining and losing playing time all in one spot, so you can quickly kind of scan over it. And in the box for the Cabrian Hayes coverage, there's six players named. Uh, Wilmer Defogue picks up 5%, Eric Gonzalez picks up 5%, Hayes loses 5%, Evans gains 15%. Uh, Todd Frazier gets 5% of the playing time. This is another example of one of those lineups that's really got a lot of bouncing balls that are you're trying to look at. And when I heard the news about Todd Frazier, I went straight to Baseball HQ's Player Link page and looked up uh, Todd Frazier. You know, I, I wouldn't have guessed this, but he's been in Major League Baseball since 2011. And starting in 2012 and all the way through last year, he's never been a minus dollar value player. Never. He's got a few seasons in his peak when he was close to $30, mid-$20 because he was stealing a lot of bases and hitting a lot of home runs. But even in 2019, 450 at-bats, a $9 player based on 21 homers and a bag, and he has a decent batting average. You know, I think he hit something like 250-ish or so, and not, nowadays that plays. So... I don't think he's going to have an immediate opportunity to get a lot of playing time in Pittsburgh, but the rest of the candidates there, Defoe, Gonzalez, guys like that, are not exactly going to make anybody forget Mike Schmidt either. 
Oh, that's true. Very definitely. I mean, after after Evans, it looks to me like Frazier will be the next best bet at the, at the moment. Yeah, I, I think Evans is definitely the play here. Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, more bad injury news. Infielder Gavin Lux was put on the 10-day IL because of a wrist injury. The team recalled infielder Sheldon Noisy from their alternate training site. I have to say Lux was already off to a slow start. It's still bad news, though. Uh, how do you think the Dodgers are going to react? Well, you know, at this point, Lux is likely to get at least uh, at least another week, I think, off. Um Noisy the, displayed some good power, willingness to take a walk, plenty of swing and miss in 2019 AAA, uh, 939 OPS with 27 homers and a 56-132 uh, walk strikeout rate over 498 at-bats. Uh, he was in the lineup Sunday versus San Diego, uh, and Blake Snell suggesting that he'll see at-bats versus left-handers at second base and maybe at third while he's up. But he's not going to play too often over uh, Zach McKinstry, who's been red hot. Uh, they've been using McCrinstry at second base, uh, but also saw some, I think, in the outfield. So a noisy worth keeping an eye on. Uh, the Dodgers have had a lot of success with infield utility types coming over from other organizations. Uh, and I would check our call-up space for, for more detail on his skills. So certainly a guy to watch. I think what this really does is give Zach McKinstry a longer leash and more of a chance to establish himself as a, as a fairly uh, regular part of the Dodgers lineup. And that daily call-ups report uh, described Noisy as the number six on the Oakland org report because he was involved in some trades in there. In the meantime, he has the potential, according to our scouts, of being a starting third baseman in the big leagues, a 7A rating, which is a everyday kind of player, not anything special. But an A means that he's very, very likely to achieve that ceiling. And sometimes uh, the consistency and the sort of relative guaranteed nature of the of the estimate are worth as much as, you know, betting on a guy having a, a, a all-star type of ceiling, but a very limited chance of getting to it. Uh, moving along, uh, we like to talk about Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column every week here at Baseball HQ Radio in the National League segment. And uh, he's got an interesting column this week again called Snap Judgments. And one of the players he makes a snap judgment on is uh, Miami starter Trevor Rogers, who's off to a terrific start. Yeah, Trevor Rogers coming off a 6.11 ERA in 2020 was almost an afterthought on the Miami staff with lots of uh, kind of sexier names uh, being drafted ahead of him. But he'd been pitching like the ace in Miami so far. Four in runs, 23 strikeouts, and 15 innings pitched. Uh, so far, he's leaned very heavily on his fastball, 62% usage with newfound velocity, while his slider and his changeup have both been generating swinging strike rates, uh, 18% for the uh, slider, 60% for the changeup, uh, and have been very dominant companions to the fastball. We'd like to see his five ball rate drop a bit, but uh, Rogers has some prospect pedigree. He was a first round pick in 2017, an excellent repertoire. Uh, and uh, uh, Ryan says this kind of this breakout could last very deep into the summer for Trevor Rogers. So if he's uh, if he's still available in your league, take a good long look at him. Another name that. Uh... Ryan came up with his in Miami. Sandy Alcantara is off to a really terrific start. Uh, in the forecaster, he was given an upside possibility of a 350 ERA with 200 strikeouts. And while, uh, you know, this is not anything that's guaranteed, he's off to a pretty good start so far. As I said, uh, 328 ERA, 093 whip in four starts. And he's got a nice, interesting pitch mix. So uh, check out that column by Ryan Bloomfield talking about Sandy Alcantara and some other guys, as well as some players who are on the wrong side of some early uh, 
especially some early metrics uh, like lower strikeout rates, uh, lower velocities, and so forth. Uh, we mentioned earlier we were talking about the Washington rotation. Uh, Patrick Corbin is part of that uh, rotation as well, and the question this year was whether he could have a rebound after some rough sledding. Uh, Tanner Smith, a new analyst at BaseballHQ.com, has a regular report he calls the Arsenal Report. This has to do with pitch mixes as well. What was Tanner Smith's uh, take on Patrick Corbin in Washington? You know, I really like this new this new uh, column at Baseball HQ because it looks very deeply into pitch mixes and velocities and all of that sort of thing and gives us a good idea of not only guessing about what to expect, but why we might expect that. Um, the Nationals certainly knew there would be some risk when they, when they signed a six-year deal at the end of their six-year deal with Patrick Corbin, but they probably didn't expect his performance to decline as drastically in the second and third year. Uh, in 11 starts in 2020, he had an ERA of 4.66. First three starts of 2021, an astronomical 10.95 ERA. Uh, not only have his results declined, but the process of stuff has changed as well. When Corbin was at his best in 2019, he had an above-average sinker with a slider that ranked among the best in the game. Slider was tied for first with Justin Verlander uh, in uh, run value stat for all sliders in 2019, preventing 27 more runs than an average slider. Maintained an above-average slider in 2020, that dropped down to 15th among all sliders, with six runs prevented above average. Uh, the pitch wasn't the all-world offering it had been in 2019, but it has not generated encouraging results or pitch characteristics at all in a limited 2021 sample. Two basic differences have been a major decrease in velocity, going from an average of 81.7 in 2019 to 78.3 miles per hour in 2021, and a related lack of downward bite on the pitch. Uh, he had some, some nice... Nice videos to look at in the uh, in the column that shows you how that pitch is not is not breaking the way it should. Uh, the slider is harder at an average of 81 miles an hour and has a harder break to it uh, in the 2019 example, but in 2021 it's been slower, more sweeping action than bite. Uh, he's getting more horizontal break on his slider so far in 2021, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, while the break is generally good, there are cases in which shorter, tighter break is more effective. Think of the difference between a loopy curveball, which breaks a lot, but fairly easy for a hitter to pick up, uh, and the uh, Jacob deGrom slider, which is not special at all in terms of how it moves, but it's special in terms of its velocity and a late tight break that makes it very difficult to, uh, to pick up at all. So while the slider may be a lesser pitch individually than it was in 2019, it's also part of an overall arsenal that is diminished and struggling. Hitters have an astonishing 1.154 slugging percentage on Corbin's sinker in 2021. And that's down to averaging 90.5 miles per hour from 92.2 in 2019. And a 1.667 slugging percentage on his changeup. Um, we don't know if this is simply an extended uh, hangover after a heavy workload in 2019 of 225 innings pitched, or whether this may be the new arsenal Corbin has to work with. He showed encouraging signs at his most recent start on April 20th, allowing no earned runs in six innings, but with the many stuff, it's hard to see the 2019 form returning unless the stuff ticks back up. 
Well, you know, the idea of a playoff hangover, I did some research for Baseball HQ a few years ago, looked at a bunch of pitchers uh, and compared their years where they weren't in the playoffs with the years that they were. There is no hangover. I just don't believe that it exists. Uh, the, the playoffs usually end, I mean, even in 2020, they they ended a little later, but it's still months before the, the pitching resumes. And in the meantime, these guys are in better shape than ever, all this kind of stuff. I, don't, I can't see that a 2019 Long, slightly longer season than normal is still affecting a pitcher in 2021. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I kind of wishful thinking is what we're, we're on at that point, I think, in terms. So I, I agree with you. I think it's not, uh, you know, not, not something we should be uh, placing a prayer on in this, in this particular instance. But that's not to suggest that uh, Tanner's not onto something here with this analysis because the pitch mix has adjusted somewhat and that's fine but all of the pitches seem to be lesser than they used to be and that's a real problem right that's it and when all the pitches are are down that's a very definite problem uh corbin last pitched on the on uh, april the 20th uh and uh, as as he said uh, that was a pretty good outing six innings pitched uh, four hits no earned runs five strikeouts no walks so perhaps he's straightening things out uh given what i just read uh in, in, in Tanner's article, I would not be putting him back in my lineup immediately. I want at least another good start out of him uh, before I decided that, yeah, he's okay and he's going to be fine uh, for a while. Who was that uh, decent start against? That was against St. Louis. Yeah, not a bad team. Not so. a bad team. Yeah, first bad start was against Los Angeles. Okay, we can we can give him that. Second was against right. uh, Arizona, uh, and that was nine run runs and two innings pitched. Ooh. Against Arizona, and nobody's nobody's mistaking Arizona for the 75 Reds. That's right. Absolutely. All right, Nick, thanks very much for the update. Do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again with more National League news next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Boy, PD, we got a lot to talk about this week, don't we? No kidding. This uh, American League news segment could probably be a show unto itself. Uh, maybe that's something that we ought to consider in the future. <laughs> well, it's what we need is more Baseball HQ Radio podcasts covering an even wider array of stuff. Rip up the budget. We're doing this all the time. <laughs> Never mind the budget. That's right. This is important. Uh, well, and it is important. Uh, well, let's start in Houston. They had a bunch of guys on the COVID IL. Uh, the COVID IL, for those who are, are not familiar, is an in injured list that base, Major League Baseball has set up to keep guys who are suspected of COVID, exposed to COVID, contact traced through COVID, those kind of things. But there's no date. It's not a seven-day thing or a 10-day thing. You put them on as a team, and you can take them off as a team whenever the need uh or whenever the possibility arises. And they had a lot of guys on that COVID list, and now they're starting to come back. Alex Bregman, Jordan Alvarez, Martin Maldonado, and infielder uh, Robel Garcia all expected to rejoin the team this week, and they did. They still have to do some testing and stuff like that to play, but Jose Altuve is the only guy who isn't back. Yeah, it's I, when they instituted the or when they announced these COVID rules back in the beginning of spring training or whatever it was. I thought this all sounded great because you know let's be sensible about this. When the guys are cleared to come back, you know let's not worry about how many days there are in the DL stint. Let's get them. Let's get them back on the field as quickly or, 
or not as we can. And the other thing about it is because of that, you can put them on the DL when there's just a suspected case. I, I was one, you know, as a Red Sox fan, it was one case the weekend before last or something where they put JD Martinez on, on that list for a day because he showed up to the park with a cold and they wanted to isolate him. So they brought somebody else up for the day and they were able to activate him the next day when the test was negative. This all sounds great, except for, you know, from the fantasy perspective, as you just said, now we don't know when the guys are coming back. So we got to check every day, right? It's like we're all in daily transaction leagues all of a sudden, which is, you know, mildly annoying. And then the other part of it that, um, that they're doing a much better job about this year than last year is they're not telling us either in the Nats case back in around opening day or this one with the Astros, they're not telling us which guys are positive and which guys are just the close contacts. So in this case, we learned, I guess, by process of elimination that when Altuve was the only one who wasn't cleared to come back out of this group, that he must have been the positive case. And these guys are all the uh, these other guys who are back were all the close contacts to him. It would have been nice to know that 10 days ago, but you know, here we are. So overall good news, but with a, with a dose of frustration that I personally had not anticipated when they announced these rules. And of course, the other difficulty that arises from this uncertainty is in daily leagues, it's bad enough. You, at least you can make the move, but gosh, if a guy goes on this COVID list, possibly temporarily on Monday or Tuesday of a week, uh, now you've, now you're stuck, either stuck with him if he doesn't make it all the way through. And then on the, or if he gets on the list on Saturday and you got to make a weekly decision on Sunday, you're kind of caught in the middle. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what happened with Altuve this weekend because all these Astros have been out for a week, and they knew we knew that for the uh, the close contacts that are generally a seven day quarantine that those guys would all be activated on Tuesday, and as it turned out, four of the five were, but we didn't know which of the four four of the five were. So if you rolled the dice and took the eighty percent likelihood and hoped that Altuve was one of the four of the five, now you've got Altuve active this week and he's not back yet. So you know we're still, as always, working with incomplete information. And of course, I imagine Jordan Alvarez owners must have been disappointed he did not get the start in Colorado because he's got those wonky knees. They don't like him playing the field, so he managed to grab some bench in that situation, which is something to consider in the future. I mean, they are going to play some games in National League parks, and it looks like any fantasy that we had that he might sneak into uh, the starting lineup in the field is probably misplaced. Yeah, and certainly I think the door is closed on any 10 game in, in season eligibility or anything like that. If you're, you know, if you're in a situation where you need one or two, you might get those by sometime in summer an emergency or something like that. But, you know, even to your point, semi-regular appearances in the parks, this is a, this is a bad sign for that. And speaking of COVID, Minnesota placed a few players on the COVID-19 list, including outfielder Max Kepler. He's probably on a lot of rosters. Uh, Caleb Thielbar and Kyle Garlic, maybe not, quite so broadly uh, rostered. Kepler actually tested positive and uh, Tealbar and Garlic were close contacts. The Twins uh, activated Brent Rooker from the 10-day real IL uh, on Tuesday. They recalled uh, an infielder named Travis Blankenhorn who celebrated by making an error and costing them a game and costing me a save. And and Luke Farrell got called up from the team's alternate training site. Lewis Thorpe's called up. Gosh, how do we keep track of all this stuff, Ray? Uh, help us out. Uh, all I took out of that is that you're really bitter about that blown save, PT. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, this Alex Colomay, if he has any luck at all, it's only bad. Like he's he's just been 
really, really unlucky in the save situation. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was listening uh, sort of half-heartedly to the game, and I thought, well, here we go, you know, he, that he loads the bases with walks and then gets an easy ground out, and the, this Blankenhorn kid uh, throws it away. And then the third baseman, another young kid, throws it away to lose the game. And uh, Exactly. Fantasy baseball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> drive you nuts. Anyways, back, back to the story. Yeah, this one was a little interesting. Um, you know, <clears throat> maybe for the uh, maybe I'm playing ab- amateur epidemiologist or something. But uh, you know, so they the, the twins had this uh, outbreak of you know three more guys um, put on the uh, COVID list. You know, Kepler testing positive, and you'll remember I think we talked about last week that Anderson Simmons tested positive, but they said that the Kepler case was not related, or the contact tracing did not go back to the Simmons case, which I guess was good news if for the people who wanted to blame Anderton Simmons for being patient zero. But the um I, I kind of see that the other way, which means that there's patients, you know, patient zero is still out there, right? Yeah. There's somebody else and you know there's a clubby or uh you know they all went to a restaurant in Anaheim or you know something that caused all of the caused this uh you know T wide outbreak that seems not great. Yeah they were so all, um if Nelson Cruz was involved I was gonna say there's they might have all gone to the old folks home. <laughs> it could have been that. <laughs> Cruz was in his hotel room in bed at 6.30 at night, so we didn't have to worry about him being exposed here. <laughs> but, but, but in all seriousness, the, the short-term playing time winner here is probably Brent Rooker uh, because, again, they did not call up Alex Kirilov. We talked about last week how Kirilov made a one-day appearance as a extra man for a doubleheader. But uh, you know, we're getting closer to the day when Kirilov gets called up. But until that happens, it's probably Brent Rooker filling in for uh, Kepler. Uh, we had him as a 7C rating, which is about as average as they get on our call-ups uh, report when he made made the uh, roster earlier this month. He, so he just came off the DL to come back. And there's some power there. Uh, 22 home runs in 2018 in the minors. Uh, so you know, Jake Cave has done absolutely nothing in uh, his appearances in the outfield. So you know, I think this is probably an opportunity for Rooker not just to fill in for Kepler here, but maybe even when uh, you know when Kepler comes back and Kirilov comes back, you know he might stick around as the I guess that would be fifth outfielder at that point ahead of Cave, where at least there's a there's an opening for that. The Yankees got some bad news. Uh, Luke Voigt, I think they were kind of hoping might be back sooner than later. It looks like he's going to miss some more time than they were hoping. Uh, also, Jay Bruce retired uh, somewhat suddenly. Uh, that leaves, uh, looks like Rugnet Odor and Mike Ford to call up now filling in over there. Yeah, so the Yankees continue to try to patchwork that first base situation without uh, w- without Void, and it looks like they're going to be doing that for at least another three weeks or so, as you say. there's a They've put a, a roughly a mid-May timeline around Void, and that probably makes sense. Uh, I, I was doing some calculation there, and it, it probably includes uh, – a rehab assignment or has something to do with the start of the triple a season. They can get void a week or something down there because, you know, we're getting to the point where it's been a long time since void has uh, swung a bat. You, you know, we've talked before about the questionable level of competition at the alternate site. And you were getting to the point where, you know, we're going to be able to have uh, you know, legit rehab assignments, et cetera. So, you know, this timing might allow void to, uh, to take advantage of one of those, but with Bruce gone, you know, the Yankees are going to mix and match with uh, Mike Ford, who got recalled and has appeared at first base. And then uh, Odor, who you mentioned, 
I, I, who I think was actually the impetus for Bruce to retire because when the Yankees made that move to acquire Odor, uh, I think that was pretty much uh, transactionally lined up with Bruce's roster spot going away. Uh, Odor, of course, famously has struggled for some time in Texas now, uh, you know, hit 205 in 2019 and then 167 last year. So that's, uh, you know, we're going on 700 at bats of, uh, you know, sub, sub 200 average there. I, you know, I was looking at him getting ready for this, and it's a little surprising. The sample size is tiny, but uh, he's only struck out a couple of times in 25 at bats so far this year with the Yankees. So, uh, you know, three strikeouts in 25 at bats is pretty good for anybody, and you know, really, really good for Rutten Odor. Um, he's still only hitting 120, so nothing's good. Good is happening when he puts the bat on the ball yet. But uh, if if the release and DFA and, you know, becoming persona non grata in Texas, you know, sunk into his head and suggested that an approach change might be in order. He, he may at least be demonstrating that he is capable of that, uh, that approach change. So I'm, I'm a little interested here to see what happens over the next three weeks while, while Void is out. He's not going to play every day, but it's a little bit interesting. The critique of players who are known as free swingers or have that track record who then try to get back into the lower strikeout mode is that they swing more tentatively and they become overly choosy and they end up being what Rugnet Odor has been this year, which is a guy who puts the bat on the ball a lot and generates very limited contact. And uh, could that be a case where you almost wish that if you had Odor on a roster that you really would rather that he swing for the fences because he might at least hit one over the fence once in a while? Yeah, there's certainly an element to that going on. And this might just be part of the adjustment process, you know, step one, put bat on ball more often. Step two, you know, manage to do so while maintaining hitting the ball with some authority. You know, pulling up his uh, hard, medium, and soft uh, splits that we have in player link, you're right. Um, his soft contact percentage is at a career high, again, in 23 at-bats, so we're not going to obsess about it. But it shows that, uh, for, for right now at least, that the, that the dynamic is exactly what you say it is. He's putting the bat on the ball more often, but uh, he's – uh, you know, he's, he's trading off his authoritative contact to do so. So stay tuned. Maybe he'll figure it out. Maybe he won't. He's, uh, he's twisting the Rubik's cube right now, I guess, in search of a better answer. And Mike Ford, meanwhile, will get some at-bats. Uh, we would presume at least until Voight gets back and they can shuffle everything back the way they would really like to have it with Voight at first, uh, LeMahieu at second and so forth. But Mike Ford in 2019 was not a bad player. I mean, he wasn't great. He only had 143 at-bats, but gosh, a 909 OPS in those 143 at-bats has to at least make you sit up and take a little notice along with a 10% walk rate. Yeah, that's right. He he was pretty decent in a in, a, in, a, in that short sample with 12 home runs and 140 at bats in 2019, and then last year, uh, you know, there were some. You know, he was up and down off the roster. Obviously, this screwy short season, he hit hit all of a buck 35 in an even smaller sample, 74 at bats. So you net that all out for his career, and he's got you know he's and he's a 214 hitter in the majors with 14 home runs and 220 at bats, which is you know yet another one of these dime a dozen low batting average power hitters that you know see to pop up all over the game these days i guess the you know the the, the um cause for optimism there though is that you know he does he's not contact challenged to the same extent that odor is and you know not contact challenged to the same way that you would expect for a 214 career hitter he's got an 80% contact rate and he gets the ball in the air 40% of the time and in yankee stadium those 
you know, if you have power, you get the ball in the air and you put the bat of the ball a reasonable amount of time, you know, there's a chance good things happen. So both of these guys, Odor and Ford are left-handed hitters and that's good news in Yankee Stadium with the short porch there. And they're probably competing for one roster spot when Void comes back. So this is I'm guessing this is a essentially a three-week bake-off between the two of them to see which one sticks on the bench long-term. Left-handed hitter, too, which doesn't uh, stand in his way at all in that stadium. The, the thing about uh, Mike Ford, and I know we're taking a lot of time talking about Mike Ford, but gosh, if he could get his hit rate anywhere near sort of 30%, his 214 career batting average might be a lot higher, 24%, 14 in 2020, and 17 so far in very limited at-bats this year. 24% hit rate is very low, but for anybody, and it and, uh, just seems like maybe this guy's been on the wrong side of some bad luck. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, when I see, you know, just as a quick and dirty test, when I see hit rates that low, I go immediately over to the line drive percentage. Because if you see a guy who has an even average line drive percentage and is getting screwed that hard on the hit rate, that's really when you think that correction is imminently in order. But, you know, for his career... Ford's got that 20% line drive rate, which is really on the low side of normal. So if you throw in a lot of fly balls that turn into outs when they don't go over the fence, a lot of ground balls that don't lead to hits because he's not that fast, you know, is his career 20, 21% hit rate low? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, 30, 30% might be too much to ask for. He, I, I would just eyeball this and guess that he's a baseline 25, 26, 27%, which, you know, to your, to your point still means there's some regression there. But, yeah, he's 30% might be too much to ask for. Well, 214 batting average, but Baseball HQ's expected batting average metric has him as a 273 hitter by his skills. So maybe there's some upside there. Who knows? Uh, certainly worth a look in deep leagues. I don't know if I'd go in mixed. Uh, Baltimore Orioles outfielder Austin Hayes was activated from the 10-day IL. They optioned uh, Ryan McKenna, an outfielder. And uh, Anthony Santander might be going on the shelf. He's getting some kind of medical tests. Yeah, so Santander ended up getting diagnosed with a sprained ankle that sounds fairly significant. I think they threw a two- to four-week timeline on that. So Hayes essentially comes right back off the DL and and uh, inherits his playing time. So Hayes played pretty regularly last year. He hit 279 with four home runs and 122 at-bats. But, you know, the skills were sort of not that, not that optimistic. He... Uh, he had a 236 expected batting average. Uh, his power index is only 57, which is which means 57 percent of league average, which is pretty bleak. Even in you know even even in Camden Yards, that puts a pretty hard cap on what you might expect. He stole a couple of bases, and speed is probably his most uh, his most marketable skill in the fantasy world. So we're going to pay a little bit of attention because of that. Um, but again, you know another deep league guy, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'd be pretty, uh, pretty slow on the trigger with him in mixed leagues, at least. In Tampa, they put left-hander Cody Reed on the 10-day IL on Tuesday, made the move retro retroactive, and they recalled Brent Honeywell, of course. And let's start with Honeywell, who looked pretty good, Ray, the first time out. He only had a couple of innings, but pretty good innings. Yeah, he he, uh, you know, that was a sort of a much valued debut because he has been, you know, so injury riddled and such a, uh, you know, been on prospect lists since I, I think nineteen eighty nine or something like that because uh, it had it, it had been so long in between uh, appearances. But you know, he had a uh, 
he had a first start uh, against the Yankees a couple of weeks back where, he, you know, again, he only went two innings and sort of an opener, but they were scoreless innings. They sent him back down after that one, but they called him up here as that attrition on their pitching staff is really just continued unabated. Uh, and he, you know, he got into another game was less effective the other night, uh, inning and a third, couple hits, couple walks and a run. But, you know, we're at the point where, Anytime Brent Honeywell walks off a mound healthy, it's going to be it's it's good news, and they're obviously going to take it easy with him. Uh, you know, he might be up for a little bit longer this time, just because they're running out of uh, you know they're they're running out of depth, and you know they wanted to handle him slow cautiously at the start of the season, but he's being pressed into more duty, so he might stick around this time. We'll have to wait and see on the role. I would certainly think it's either going to be you know the multi inning middle reliever or the opener or something like that. I think he's a long way from graduating into getting actual five inning starts, but you know, the Rays don't give anybody named glass. Now those starts anyway. So it, it, you know, that that's a pretty high bar for this team, but he's going to be, you know, he's going to be working out of the middle somewhere probably for a while now. And there's gold in them in our Hill. Sometimes you, you want, you don't want the opener, but if he gets into that bulk guy role where he's the second guy and uh, that might be a source of some wins, it's a pretty good club. And, uh, Chris Olson, who covered this story for Playing Time Today at Baseball HQ, also mentioned that we should maybe keep an eye on left-hander Jeffrey Springs. Got a save, uh, I think, earlier this week uh, after earning a hold the day before. And uh, why does Chris Olson say we should look at Jeffrey Springs at all? I've never heard of him. Yeah, so this is the latest, uh, you know, again, the Rays have you know suffered so many losses on, on the mound. And this time it was... Uh, you know, Cody Reed going on the DL. What, what was notable about that was it leaves Springer, Springs as the last lefty standing in that bullpen, uh, and he picked up a save the other night in you know one of those we need the lefty for the ninth inning situations and converted it. So you know Diego Castillo again by process of elimination has sort of become the de facto closer there, where we thought this might be a situation where you know so many raised relievers were spreading out the role that there was never going to be a de facto closer, but Castillo has been sort of the last righty standing and has, and has grabbed that role uh, and, and been re- relatively effective with it. But Springs now as the last lefty standing may be, you know, may, may have a path to a couple of more saves like the one he picked up the other night. Chris just gave him, uh, you know, in, in his update, Chris Olson gave him 5% of the raise saves. So now he's projected for, you know, three more on the rest of the year or something like that. Which ain't nothing in uh, the modern saves environment, and it could be there might be some upside there because, as we know, the Rays like to mix and match. As you mentioned, look for those uh, left-hander, left-hander matchups in the late innings. He could find his way into a few more saves and maybe into some other high-leverage situations. And uh, Diego Castillo hasn't been lights out either, so maybe there's some path there to playing time. I wouldn't gamble on it in a 15-team mixed or certainly a 12-team mixed, but you know, if you're in an American League only, you could do worse. I think uh, Colin McHugh, also in Tampa, on the 10-day IL, nothing new there. No, nothing new there. Uh, you know, he, he sat out last year after being slow to recover from, uh, you know, from a 2019 injury. He had signed with the Red Sox, but never actually got onto the roster. So you know, we, we'll probably see him again yeah, you know, a few weeks down the road, but again, you know, he's another one that plugs into that, you know, middle relief role. Basically, everything we said about Honeywell just applies as far as the durability and the way the Rays will use him. I had seen him a couple of times in the multi-inning relief role, and you know, I, I, I think he closed out a game with uh, two or three innings one night, and that's I, I think 
pretty clearly all he's capable of from a durability point at this at this stage. Richards and Mazza, anything? Yeah, Richards maybe you know he's been pressed into you know he's kind of working his way up the bullpen depth chart by default. There's you know a, a, again as the attrition is the theme there with the Rays bullpen. He started out as you know one of those middle guys with a multi inning reliever. You know he was probably tagged for that role. Uh, you know his first outing of the season was a three inning stint, and then a couple of days later he came back with a two inning stint. So now he's gone three again as well. And I you know he went three and. Uh, picked up one of those three inning saves against uh, the Royals the other week. And it was very good. Uh, you know, it was three innings, one hit, one run, no walks, four Ks. You know, so he's got eight innings, one walk, 10 strikeouts this year. His ERA isn't good, but if he keeps getting one walk and 10 Ks every eight innings, he's going to keep working into, in, into more important work, you know, and we've, we're seeing around the league. I think this is something Brent and I are going to write about, but you know, with these multi-inning relievers, we're seeing them working in different, usage patterns you know we were talking about the second man in it's not always the second man in you know it's you know these two three inning relievers don't always pitch the fourth fifth and sixth you get into these situations sometimes in blowouts you know we've seen a couple of these three inning saves this year like Richard just got but sometimes it's you know two innings and you can you know they if the guy is throwing well and it's a three run game they can leave him out there for the save and you know the close you know we're not seeing closers work you know three four days in a row the way they used to they're being a little bit protected so you know Richards you know but goes in the same bucket as Springs I guess and that he's not a left-hander but you know he's situational kind of like everybody else is and on a day when Castillo isn't available they could give him the ball in the eighth inning and if he's throwing well leave him out there for the ninth you know that's a pattern you, you could see. The White Sox put Lance Lynn, the right-hander they picked up in the offseason, onto the aisle uh, earlier this week because of a strained trapezius. Uh, the team recalled right-hander Zach Birdie from the alternate training site. Rick Green on the story for playing time today. Uh, what can we guess is going to happen in Chicago while Lance Lynn is recovering? I think the short answer is not much. Uh, the, 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 he he missed one start, and they gave it to uh, Michael Kopech out of the who's been in the bullpen, but obviously is a you know historical starter. But they're managing his innings, and Kopech went uh, you know three innings in that outing against the Red Sox last weekend. the The White Sox have a couple of off days uh, sprinkled into their upcoming schedule, so it's not entirely clear that they're going to need anybody to take wins turns depending on how long he's out it might just be another start or two i would think it's going to be kopech again if it comes to that i, I thought the comments from kopech were pretty interesting uh when he came out and took that start against the red sox which was uh three innings a hit a run a walk in four k's and he kind of said he took it as an opportunity to remind everybody that he's a starting pitcher and he went out and used his starting pitch mix you know through his uh breaking balls and stuff that have been a little bit uh, more on, on the shelf when he's been uh, sort of asked to be a be a two pitch, you know, one time through the order reliever, uh, you know, for workload reasons as they bring him back from a, a Tommy John surgery and then sitting out last year. But you know, he kind of took it as a challenge to say, "Hey, remember me? I can start," which I thought was pretty interesting because what happens with the next domino in the White Sox rotation, you know, this is a short term absence, we think for win. So it doesn't mean reshuffling everything, but you know, what happens when Co a month or two from now, when Kopik is throwing well in this reliever role and they've managed his workload for a couple of months. And then the next opening comes up, maybe they take the, uh, the restrictor plate off of Kopik a little bit 
toward the second half and let him actually get back into the rotation, even though they've been pretty clear that wasn't his plan. Kopech sort of, you know, both by his actions and his words, kind of uh, raised his hand and said he would be open to that. So I thought that was really the really the takeaway here. I imagine fantasy managers with Lance Lynn on their rosters want him back sooner rather than later. Two earned runs in almost 20 innings. I think his ERA and whip are both 092. That's something that you really want to keep on your roster if you can. But I think Michael Kopech might be an interesting guy to look at as a stash. I, as you said, you know, Lynn might not be out for that long, but it might be a little longer than we think. The trapezius is on the right side is, is a, an issue. And there's going to be other injuries in the rotation, as you said. And if Kopech can establish himself in the manager's mind as a guy who can go longer than the two or three innings that they seem to have planned for him in a bullpen role, gosh, uh, Michael Kopech had some skills. Uh, updating a previous report, Ray, a Mariners outfielder Kyle Lewis was activated from the 10-day IL. As expected, Bra- uh, Braden Bishop, another outfielder, sent to the alternate training site. Uh, good to see Kyle Lewis back, but... Uh, before we all get super excited, 64% contact rate. Yeah. Kyle Lewis, you know, by all means, exciting young player, you know, fun, fun to watch. And, you know, certainly the Mariners glad to have him back, but you know, he was somebody who, you know, going back to the preseason was sort of on, I'm, I don't recall if he was specifically on our all avoid team in the market pulse, but he was, uh, he was knocking on the door of that. He was somebody whose ADP was pretty consistently higher than, uh, we were we we were valuing him, and and the, that contact rate that you highlighted is a big reason why. I mean, last uh, last year he had two sixty two uh, in sort of his coming out party with eleven home runs and five stolen bases and in just two hundred at bats. You love that power speed combo, but our skills showed that his expecting batting expected batting average was just two fifteen behind that two sixty two batting average. So definitely some uh, you know some batting average peril there. We will see, of course. You know, as in his sophomore year, we can't really even call it. Do we? Can we call it a sophomore year when the freshman year was 200 at bats? But you know, he's back for his uh, you know full full tour around the league here, and we'll see how the uh, you know the cat and mouse adjustment game between pitchers and and Lewis goes. Because I would certainly think that this is a case where there's not a lot of reason for pitchers to be throwing Kyle Lewis strikes until he uh, demonstrates that he he can lay off the pitches that are not strikes. Another issue, I think that people need to keep in the backs of their minds is that, you know, the, the home run rate looks pretty impressive, but the fly ball rate doesn't. It's around a third of his balls in play rather than the sort of 45-50 you might like to see from a potential power hitter. On the other hand, lots of ground balls for a guy who can run should help his batting average. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, I always like, you know, this is always a case where I like your metric, Patrick, the hard contact index, you know, where you've got sort of disparate elements here and we can combine them where, you know, he's got the terrible contact, but, you know, if you look at the, uh, the batted ball profile and the hard hit rate, et cetera, you know, you, you merge all that together into the hard contact index. And that in his case came out last year at 87, which is still 13% below league average, which really tells you that, you know, the, you know, even if, even though good things happen when he puts the bat on the ball, you know that that is being washed out by the fact that it just doesn't happen often enough. Yeah, exactly right. When you look at a hard contact index uh, for a guy who, that we know hits the ball as hard as he does, the first thing you do is your eye slides over, and you look at the contact rate. And uh, in 2019, when he came up, he had 59 percent uh, last year, 66 percent. So it's trending in the right direction, but it better trend a little quicker, I think. Uh, Detroit has uh, Spencer Turnbull back on the roster. They optioned uh, reliever Joe Jimenez, not that long ago, was thought of as the closer in Detroit. How the mighty have fallen. 
Yeah, boy, no kidding. Your turnball turnball slides back right into the rotation after the uh, you know after a brief DL stint. But you know, Jimenez to me was almost the uh, the story here, just because boy, he looked so bad, and he was a guy that I actually you know was on this winter as maybe the dark horse to eventually work his way back into the closer role here in Texas because in Detroit, excuse me, because. Uh, you know, Brian Garcia ended the role, ended the year with the role last year, and his skills are just terrible. And Gregory Soto throws hard, but doesn't have a heck of a lot of idea where it's going. And he's been, you know, working as the closer so far with mixed results. But you know, Jimenez ended the um, 2020 season not with the closer role, but throwing very well in September after losing the role. And I sort of thought he could carry over and work his way back into that role, but boy. Uh, he walked seven guys in two outings and <laughs> gave up five runs and got all of three outs in his two appearances back in the majors. So he clearly has a few things to work on and is a long way from working his way into any any reasonable work, a reasonable leverage situation. Uh, he needs to go back to the alternate site, and I'm sure he'll be there long enough for the AAA season to start and uh, see if he can figure out what the heck is wrong there because it's not working right now. Uh- just on the other side of the border in Toronto, uh, Ray, it seems like every week we have an update on the Blue Jays bullpen. I should set up some kind of musical intro for the weekly Jays bullpen <laughs> update. Maybe I'll do that if it keeps happening. Uh, <laughs> uh, Raphael Dolis, uh, who supposedly is the closer, was brought in in the eighth inning last night in something of a strategic move. Then they brought in Tim Meza, who's kind of on the chart as the setup guy in the ninth inning. He gets two outs, and for some reason they pull him and they bring in Anthony Castro, whom I thought last week was somebody that we ought to be targeting. So I look like a genius because he gets one out and gets the save. And uh, on Twitter, Doug Dennis, our bullpen's columnist, noted all of this action, and then I noted that I had actually rostered Castro's, putting my money where my mouth was, in Tout Wars AL, and he immediately goes out and gets a save, offsetting the catastrophe that was Alex Colomy's outing. And uh, is there any chance that this bullpen merry-go-round is going to settle down, or should we just expect this for the rest of the year? I think we just sort of have to buckle up for the for the ride, right? I've actually got a take on this though, and tell me, you know, as as the resident Jays observer, whether you think I've got this right. Um, I, I think the the take here. Is, you know, it was bad news for all of those people who poured triple-digit fab bids at Delise last weekend, thinking that he was the last man standing here. But I think it may actually be decent news for Delise longer term. Hear me out. Uh, my, my take here is that the Jays have basically established that they're going to use who they consider their best reliever in that fireman before the closer role. Right. They were going to use Romano that way in front of Yates. Yates got hurt. They kept Romano in that role when they put Merriweather there. Merriweather got hurt. Romano got hurt. And now Dolis goes into that role. Right. So my question is, what happens when Romano comes back, which is supposed to be fairly soon? I think what the Rays are telling what the Jays are telling us is that Romano is going to come back and go into that eighth inning role, which I which then would put Dolis back in the ninth inning role that everybody was bidding on him last weekend for. Am I, am I crazy? I don't think it's crazy. I just think that uh, the Jays sometimes have a bit of a uh, analytics point of view about a lot of this stuff. Their manager, Charlie Montoya, is an old school guy, and he maybe would prefer to have something a little more settled. But it hasn't been that way 
on and off throughout his tenure. Uh, of course, they signed Kirby Yates, and I can't imagine that uh, Charlie Montoya wasn't consulted on that. Like, hey, Charlie, do you want a full-time closer, or can we manage to mix and match? And he says, no, if the price is right, go get him. So I think it would be Montoya's preference to just find somebody who can get the job done and let them get the job done, but I wouldn't bet my house on it. You know, it's interesting as, you, as you're saying that, because the other thing, you know, compare this to take the twins who you were complaining about earlier, you know, the, the difference here is, you know, this has been a revolving door and we've talked about it for four weeks running now, but you credit to Montoya because I mean, unless I'm missing something, I'm not the closest Jays observer around, but this has largely been working for them, right? They've been tapping, you know, every, every button Montoya per- pushes seems to work. You know, they, they went to Merriweather and Merriweather was getting the saves, you know, early on that opening weekend series against the Yankees. And, you know, they haven't had a bunch of blown saves, even though they've had a tap, you know, now four guys in the ninth inning now, right? That that sounds about right. And before anybody gets super excited about Anthony Castro, his minor league record isn't great. It's not bad, sort of a 13 14% strikeout percent minus walks, which is, you know, it's not as dominant as you'd like, frankly. And I think that they'll mix and match until things get settled. You mentioned Romano might be coming back. Merriweather should be coming back sooner or later. And I think at that point, maybe they'll they'll go to the 7th, 8th, ninth. I just can't say what the order's going to be at this point right now. Uh, Jock Thompson had yeah. a, a piece in the uh, Playing Time Tomorrow, Ray, about the American League West. He covers the division for that uh, roster forecasting feature that we run weekly. One of the interesting stories that he covered was about Shoya Otani and this idea whether he can keep pitching and hitting. Yeah, it's it's such a quandary. And I thought Jock did a great job of sort of summarizing the situation here because I actually saw a tweet that uh you know I w- I wondered if it prompted Jock's um <laughs> Jock's uh write up today because uh it, it was mind boggling to me that um he's Otani has a higher OPS is a hitter than he does ERA, but like they're both over, they're both over a thousand. Like he's got a thousand OPS and a, and a 10 something ERA, which is a pretty, I guess, neat trick. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it's not true. His ERA, his ERA is 104. Um, but I, I it was the, uh, maybe it was his walk rate that I, the tweet was about. Anyway, um, you know, Otani is, you know, he got back on the mound this week after, you know, he had that first outing that, you know, where he, Started, he batted second, and he hit a home run, and he got taken out of the slot at the plate, and there was a blister involved, and you know he he, he checked so many boxes and four plus innings of work, it was impossible to sort of triage everything that happened there. But after you know missing uh, two weeks from pitching, he got back on the mound the other night. I was, I guess, I was a little positively encouraged that after that shutdown, he managed to go. 80 pitches, and he went four scoreless innings, which is probably a longer outing than I expected. Only one hit and no runs allowed. That's the good news. The bad news was six walks compared to seven strikeouts. So now he's got 11 walks and 14 strikeouts in eight and two-thirds innings on the season. And Jock's kind of kind of point is, well, what the heck do you do with that? You know, on the one hand, his bat has been so effective for them that you really want him in the lineup every day. And they're being more... Uh, more aggressive about doing that. Uh, You know, they had that one game when they put him in his hit to hit for himself when he pitched and they don't necessarily have him sit the day before he pitches, but he does still sit the day after it seems like, so he can still DH five, six times a week now, but you know, they can't put him into 
they didn't let him hit for himself in that game this week, I think because they knew he wasn't going to last that long into the game on the mound, and then the DH spot would be blown for the last five or six or seven innings. So, you know, Jock's just kind of sitting here saying, like, well, you could argue that his stuff would play well in relief, and maybe there are some options there to do that. You could bring him in late in the game, and, you know, if you're blowing up the DH, it's only, you know, the eighth or ninth inning probably. But the problem with that that Jock correctly points out is that, you know, we've been talking about this for I don't know how many years now, but the Jays' rotation is terrible, and they really need them there. They've got the worst starting pitcher ERA in the league, and as long as you have that, it seems like you can't slam the door on this tantalizing option of having Otani, who could be one of their best starting pitchers. So, you know, it seems like they're just going to muddle along as is for a while here and see if Otani can, I guess the first question is whether he can take the ball every fifth or sixth day for the next few turns through the rotation and actually demonstrate that he can, he can manage this workload of, of being a two-way player for a while. And I, I think that's an open question because we haven't seen it happen for any, any reasonably lengthy stretch of time here. I don't know if history gives us any lessons, Ray, about guys who want to hit and pitch at the same time. We've had a few of them over the past couple of years, Brendan McKay and guys like that. But Shoei Otani's the first guy I can think of, maybe in my baseball watching lifetime, who's really quite has quite good potential on both sides of the ball. The question, I think, is, is he going to be less effective at both by trying to do both or whether they need to have him focus on one thing or the other? And the one thing that I would draw attention to is, yeah, he's got a lot of strikeouts this year, but boy, oh boy, he's walking a lot of guys. And I know there's blister issues and all that kind of stuff, but gosh, I think if I was the Angels even notwithstanding their weak rotation, I think I might just say, you know what, we have to suck this up and find some other solutions because if we get this guy out there doing both, there's a chance that he just doesn't do well at either. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I've more been looking for it from signs the other way. I I think it's incredibly impressive that he can be as good a hitter and as productive at the plate as he is when he's, you know, got, you know, half of his brain on pitching, you know, or at least a couple of days a week, he's got to throw his side sessions and worry about getting ready for opposing lineups and that sort of thing. But what I think you're getting at, which is really interesting there is, is the lack of control and command, a function of, I mean, sure he was he was rusty this last start after coming off the blister, but you know, is the is the demand of what he needs to do for side sessions and repetition of his delivery and that sort of stuff in as a pitcher being impacted by the fact that he's in the lineup every day and you know can't completely gas his legs, for instance, throwing all out in a, you know, in a bullpen session because, you know, he's got to go out and hit four times tonight and run the bases and that sort of thing. You know, is it, you know, uh, is what he's doing really just, you know, as talented as he is on both sides of the ball, is it really just asking too much of his body? I I, I think that's, that's in play at this point, right? I think it has to be. And when you look at his entire major league record as a pitcher, it's only 62 innings, and I understand that. 30% strikeout rate is impressive, but I come back to those walks. 15% walks, so he's uh, basically just hovering around that 2-to-1 ratio that we set at Baseball HQ. It used to be kind of the minimum, and I think the minimum is even higher now because the amount of strikeouts in baseball has risen. What do we look at as a kind of a baseline uh, command ratio, 2.5 or even 3? Yeah, it's at least 2.5, and, a half and you, want to, you know, probably 2.5 probably is tolerable for a starter. And you know that has multiple 
impacts too, because then not only is it just you know the base runners and the effectiveness, but it's the number of pitches thrown and his ability his ability to throw deeper into the game. So you know that all of the effects of that um, you know that that lack of command that substandard command are you know right at the heart of everything that's wrong with uh, you know everything that's going wrong with him on the mound right now. And even though the uh, you know the earned run column looks pretty good, there's uh, you know there's a lot wrong under the hood still here. I think so too. Uh, Jock also covered the unsettled bullpen in Texas where Ian Kennedy seems to have taken firm hold of the closer role after the departures of Jose Leclerc and Jonathan Hernandez. He's got seven innings, uh, only allowed two earned runs, no walks, 11 strikeouts and four saves in four tries. But Jock says Ian Kennedy is not a great bet to last the season in the role. What's the story here, and whom should we be looking at as handcuffs or speculations in Texas? The new name emerging there, you know, if not an immediate threat to Kennedy, but maybe a longer-term one, is Joey Rodriguez, who um, returned to the U.S. to pitch last year and looked pretty good with a 213 ERA and, uh, you know, notably is a lefty but had no real platoon split, which suggests that he could handle – you know, sort of whatever is thrown at him in the ninth inning. It doesn't have to be treated entirely as a specialist. You know, there's some good stuff there. There's a you know 94-plus-mile-an-hour fastball from the left side, you know, pretty nice ground ball tilt historically throughout his career. So there's you know, there's some reason to think that, you know, if Ken, you know, while Kennedy has done nothing to lose the job so far and has probably, you know, exceeded expectations in the role so far, uh, you know, th- there's – you know, the, the Rangers, as they move into taking sort of a long, longer term view th- on things, may move to Rodriguez as a you know, more of a building block. Kennedy could be on the trade block at some point this summer, those sort of concerns. So, you know, Rodriguez, you know, much as we were stockpiling all of the options behind Leclerc back in the spring from Jonathan Hernandez, we talked about Bad Bush a couple of times, you know, those guys are all out of the picture. And now it's, Probably Joey Rodriguez, who is the, uh, the the heir apparent whenever this good run from Kennedy comes to a close, either due to in it due to ineffectiveness or change of role or team. I was looking at uh, Joey Rodriguez. So far this year, he's only pitched, I think, uh, a couple of innings. He had a third outing uh, that you mentioned, uh, uh, maybe uh, two-thirds or something like that, gave up a bunch of hits and runs. But overall, he looks pretty good. And uh, another name to keep an eye on, Jock says, is Colby Allard. I remember this guy, left-hander. Yeah, he's um, turned a couple of heads with some outings. You know, This is another case where he's got the you know, that sort of multi-inning middle relief role. And the the Rangers rotation has been surprisingly serviceable. So he hasn't had a lot of work in that role, but he had a uh, sort of a head-turning outing last weekend when he went three innings perfect with five strikeouts. And, you know, that'll get a lot of people's attention. Um, So, you know, he's, you know, it remains to be seen whether he is, you know, there's a lot of paths this could go. He could sort of end up end up staying in that, you know, middle relief second man in role for a while as a multi inning guy, or he could get into some of the late inning mix too. Or, you know, if there's attrition in the rotation, he's a starter by trade, so he could be tapped to step into the rotation later in the season. Uh, you know, we should temper our optimism a little optimism a little bit because he's been he was absolutely brutal in 2019 and 2020. So we want to see a little bit more of a sample here, but if he continues to thrive in this, uh, you know, in the role he's in now, it'll be interesting to see which way the Rangers try to groom him. If he moves into more of a late inning relief picture, or if they stretch him out again. 
And finally, Ray, uh, staying with the bullpen situations in the American League West, Jock Thompson wrote about the Seattle Mariners. And, uh, of course, we're all familiar now with the weird situation going on there. The closer now appears to be right-hander Kendall Graveman, back from the grave, I guess you could say. Back from the grave, yes. You know, a really interesting story. And, you know, he was obviously a starter with... Oakland a few years back, and I think he passed through, was it Pittsburgh too? But along the way, he had, um, I don't think it was exactly thoracic outlet, but it was something like that, where he had a transition to relief and had been determined he needs to stay in the bullpen. And, you know, boy, has he really thrived in that role. He's picked up a ton of velocity. He's throwing, he's touching 99 now, and, you know, has kind of become the cornerstone of this bullpen. And Jock's overall point is that this overall bullpen is actually pretty sneaky good. You know, Graveman, by being super effective, has graduated into the, you know, ace, closer, whatever we're calling it role that's, He's handled the ninth inning a few times. He's handled the eighth inning against the meat of the order a couple of times. You know, he's the most trusted arm there. Montero started out as the closer and has been, you know, had a couple of rocky outings and Graveman surpassed him. But Montero hasn't been terrible either. Uh, you know, he had a, a clean eighth inning and then picked up another save the other night. So he's sort of righted the ship the little, ship a little bit. But, you know, this bullpen just sort of keeps going. Uh, you know, they have the lefty Anthony Misowitz who, you know, has been pretty effective as the uh, in a specialist role, and they picked up Keenan Middleton, who was rehabbing from Tommy John at, with the Angels a couple of years ago, moved up north to Seattle, and also looked pretty good. Um, you know, a fifteen percent swing strike rate, unscored on in six of seven outings. So this is not a, this is a case where they've got a lot of good options in the bullpen and like everyone else, to the annoyance of fantasy managers everywhere, they're using them rather creatively, but you know, it's easier to be creative when you've got good options to work with as opposed to being creative out of desperation when you can't find anybody to get three outs when you need them. And the, the, the Mariners are in the former category right now. I remember Middleton as having a bit of issue with his command and control, and Jock did point out he's five strikeouts, five walks so far this year, so you know, put that in your back of your mind when you're thinking about maybe putting a bid in on Keenan Middleton or any of these guys. I think this is one of those situations, Ray, that uh, this is going to be a mix and match situation maybe for the rest of the year. Uh, I don't know how the Mariners want to play this, but the smart way of playing it is usually put the best guy against the best opportunity. Yeah, that's right. And it does seem like they're predisposed to do that. And I think we've talked about this before, but another periodic reminder for the listener, if you're fishing around in this bullpen for a keeper league option, don't get too excited about any of these guys because the Mariners do have our our good friend Ken Giles on the IL this year. They signed him as a re- he recovers from Tommy John surgery, but he's likely the closer in 2022. So this is not a place where you're looking for if you're trolling for future saves, that any of these guys are probably on your radar. Thanks very much, Ray. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, PD. I'm going to go uh, hydrate after that rapid-fire session here. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, an analyst and writer at FantasyGuru.com. He'll be coming to the plate in just a second. But before we roll ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show, another Friday full edition, featuring a special guest interview with another leading fantasy baseball expert, plus our usual news and commentary. That's next Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, 
analyst and writer at fantasyguru.com. Vlad, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been fun so far. At Fantasy Guru, you have a regular weekly feature advising readers on possible waiver wire targets for that weekend's fab runs. Uh, these are more based on 15 teams, or do you do 15 and 12? Uh, so I do both, and it's a, it's a pretty robust piece. Um, I usually spend a good chunk of my Friday looking at uh, basically every player that is rostered in 80% or less of, uh, of, of overall 12-teamers, of overall 15-teamers, and identify everybody that's a target, basically. Uh, you know, just, just kind of running through and then breaking it down by position and then sort of prioritizing for folks and, you know, at that point so they can make their own decisions. What makes a player a waiver wire target? Uh, anyone that's, that is, can be a, a fantasy asset for the team, whether that be short-term uh, based on uh, upcoming matchups. Uh, they just jumped, you know, got a, got a, a role as a, as, a, as a closer to notch some saves, uh, uh, a hitter that is um, moved up into the lineup or was just promoted um, that that's looking good. That's showing um, improvement in, in, you know, their, their, their skill set in their lineups, lineup spot. So lots of different things. And, and even at that case, sometimes just warm bodies, to be honest, um, these days of, of, uh, of, of just so much attrition and, and everyone hitting the IL. Uh, sometimes we have to recommend those, uh, those uh, Joe Rosses of the world. You set bid ranges for the players that you do get your targets for. How do you establish the ranges? That part's tough. This is something I just introduced. Um, I, I didn't have it in my first couple of years, um, but uh, you know, I had some recommendations, people wanting help in terms of how much to bid on a player. So I just use basic general ranges um, in terms of what I would personally um, value them at, at the market, uh, what we're noticing and, doesn't seem to be any different this year is people are always chasing closers, chasing save. We, we lost so many, so many guys, even, you know, before the season we were talking about earlier on the show, like, you know, everybody expected a lot of people expected James Kerinchek to close in, you know, back in February when they were drafting him early, uh, Emilio Pagan for a little bit, there was like, seemed like he was going to be the guy. And then they, you know, uh, pulled the, uh, the okie doke and, and made it Melanson, which, which, Obviously, it does make sense. Still, Anthony Bass lost his job. I mean, just so much of that. Toronto, people chasing the closer situation there. Um, so uh, a lot of times, the highest price bids, what we've seen lately, are for for those guys, like people chasing you know, Kendall Graveman this past weekend. And so I try to make it a fair market value to each team and each type of league. It's different, but generally, the 15-team bids will come in higher, usually a um, a closer who is legit the closer. He looks like the guy, not like a Kendall Graveman or a Rafael Delis. Those guys will go for 250, 300 plus out of a thousand dollar budget. Whether that's worth it to you, you know, specifically uh, to the person playing, it's up to them. So to me, I just find it wild that even these, you know, like I paid 122 for Rafael Delis this week without even knowing he was going to close because I lost a bunch of closers. It's just these positions we put ourselves in, you know, chasing certain positions. So and I'm sorry, I know that doesn't uh, specifically answer the question, but um, just, you know, the general ranges. And then obviously you're, you know, in a 12-teamer, you've got, uh, you know, Willie Castro, Joey Votto, these, you know, uh, Brian Anderson, actually, bad example because he just hit the IL, but like all these just easily replaceable guys, you know, these are all, can easily categorize them as like 5 to $15 bids, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that's in a $1,000 budget. Uh, some leagues play with $100 budgets, Vlad and I wonder. It always seemed to me I've played a, a couple of years where I was in one with a hundred, one with a thousand, and it seems like the 
the general gist is if you have a, a league with a $1,000 FAB budget, that the amount you're willing to pay in that format should be roughly 10 times what you would pay in $100, all other things being equal, which I know that they seldom are. But it seems instead that people are somehow just more willing to spend when they have a $1,000 budget than when they have a $100 budget in terms of percentages, which makes no sense to me. Have you noticed that? I have. I have, and I, I've noticed that specifically playing in expert leagues and in, in, in tout wars. It's a, I think it's a um, just like a, a psychological thing. Um, it's just the fact that you just feel like you have a lot more money and that it will last you longer. Uh, it just makes sense. It's just a you know sort of basic like economic feeling. Like you know you 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 don't want to be left with no money for for all season. And I guess some people don't care, but yeah, I mean I think it's just like a psychological thing where a hundred bucks just it, it is a lot. It is less than a thousand, um, but people feel like they'll spend it quicker if they're paying that equal percentage, the, you know, the 10 X of, you know, a thousand dollar budget. No, that's exactly right. I think there is a, a bit of a logical reason to it too. And that is in a, you might think the ideal price to pay in a hundred dollar budget would be $2 and 50 cents, but you can't, you have to either bid two or three. And I think there might be a bit of reluctance to go rounding up the amount that you're going to have to pay. Whereas in the thousand dollar format, you can just pay the $25, which is the equivalent of two fifty, and, and do things exactly the way you want to. And of course that presupposes that you can estimate the value to, you know, two places of decimal, which I'm very leery of just as yeah. a, a general rule. Uh, you said on Twitter that you passed on Michael Fulmer of uh, Detroit because you thought he was, and you called him a trap bid. What did you mean by a trap bid and why was Michael Fulmer one? Uh, you know, what's funny is that that's actually a really funny scenario. Um, because it, it, it just kind of, it's always humbling. And, and that's the one thing in, in fantasy, I feel like no, no matter how good you think you are at, at this or anything in life, there's always some moments or something that happens to kind of humble you and, and sort of center you back in. Um, so that's why when I, you know, see people kind of really getting full of themselves, I'm like, ah, the Roto Karma is coming for you. Watch out. Uh, but that was an interesting scenario where I, that the Fulmer thing was almost m more tongue in cheek because I mentioned it after the deadline. I didn't want to influence anything beforehand, but that was a conversation. Uh, a, a good friend of mine I've played fantasy with been friends with for over 20 years is, uh, is Scott Jenstead. And, uh, you know, we, we, we talk usually before the, the, the bidding period on Sundays and I had, you know, Joe Ross, I, I didn't like really deep dive too deep into it. I'm like, okay, well. Joe Ross coming off two starts, um, you know, no runs at all. That seems very, you know, sketchy. It's still Joe Ross, like something's, you know, something's not right here, but people are going to be bidding on him. He's got two, uh, two starts, one, I think Mets, one St. Louis. doesn't look pretty on paper. It can go either way. And then I start looking into, you know, his expected uh, starts. I look at swinging strike rate. Just look at different uh, metrics and see like, you know, how lucky was Joe Ross in those first couple starts. The more I start digging into it, I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to, really spend, uh, you know, what, what I think he is going to be going for here. So I started moving him down my, my bid list a little bit. And then I noticed that Michael Fulmer, who I didn't pay much attention to, um, I, 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 it looked like he was going to have a two-start week and it was going to be really pretty Pittsburgh KC, but then Spencer Turnbull was coming back. And so it appeared as though Spencer Turnbull was going to take the earlier turn in the week and that Fulmer would be pushed back to, uh, to just a single start. So he became less interesting. I didn't write him up. Um, so then before the deadline, I messaged Scott. I'm like, Hey, 
uh, what do you think of, uh, what, do you th- uh, what are you doing with Fulmer? Do you, do you really like him? He goes, yes. And then I'm like, hmm, interesting. I go, you like him more than Joe Ross? He said, yes. I go, well, why? What's wrong with Joe Ross? He says, he's Joe Ross. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But is Michael Fulmer Michael Fulmer? I'm like, yeah, but okay, you know, slider's looking good. Velocity's up. Uh, he's healthy. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe a good point here. Um, and so the, the trap to your original question is, Whenever something looks too good to be true on paper, it, it usually is. It's always how it ends up being. Uh, and Mike Fulmer ended up lining up for the two-start Pittsburgh KC. The Pittsburgh game got rained out, so he lost his two-step. On top of that, he got blasted in three innings uh, the following start. So, you know, it just goes and, – and, and, and not to even speak of Joe Ross, who got, you know, worked for 10, for 10 runs or whatever it was. So – it's just all, everything's always so humbling and it's just a reminder, but like I'm even more so starting this week, I'm really going to dig into these two star pitchers to see, am I bidding on them just because they have two starts and I'm in this habit of like, you know, just want to rack up the strikeouts or am I laying a trap for myself? You said you got a whole lot more Rafael Dolis than you planned on in your NFBC leagues. Uh, what did you mean and why did you get too much or was it too much? Ah, uh, I don't know. I guess we don't know yet. Um, it just ended up being that I, my, my backup bids to Kendall Graveman, because I, I'm in a position in my 15 teamers where, you know, I did lose Anthony Bass, uh, um, you know, Rafael Montero, we weren't sure about, he was another guy that I had. And I was left with, you know, just like, you know, Will Smith on one team, only Alex Reyes, Ryan Presley in another. And I know that saves are important. And so I ended up you know, there, there aren't many guys available that we can bid on for saves this past weekend or potential for saves. And thought maybe there was an opportunity that Delise could possibly uh, grab some, even if it's in the short term, I wouldn't mind spending up a little bit for him to, to be able to grab a guy with some saves. The part I didn't really think about, and this goes back to something that uh, our fellow analyst and, and, and local Toronto guy, Rob Silver said uh, about the Blue Jays is he literally showed a quote from the manager from early April that said, they're not going to have a, a straight up closer. They're always going to play this by by committee, you know. And that's why we saw those last couple of days. Uh, Jordan Romano came in and uh, or Dolis came in and faced the, the the heart of the the lineup uh, of the opponent. Same thing earlier in the year. We had Merriweather coming in facing the heart of the lineup. Jordan Romano when he was healthy, the same thing. So we don't really know who's going to be the closer. So I'm just in this bag of like, yeah, I have Dolis. He's got a five game week. Um, you know, I, I would like some saves. I would like for him to get the job, but in reality. I don't know if he is the closer, and I don't know if me holding him is going to be end up being a good thing. We talked earlier, Vlad, about the dangers of rostering basically on the come. I have Adley Rutschman I mentioned, but lots of guys rostered Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard, Bobby Witt, kind of hoping that he wouldn't take up too much space on a seven-man reserve. Of course, it always works out that it is too much space. Is the realization of that going to change how you do your drafts in the future with regard to taking these kinds of reserve list playing time gambles? It really depends on the format, right? So if we're playing the, the NFBC, you've got a, a seven player bench. That's it's, it's really thin. And my rule of thumb is I usually don't like to take more than one uh, stash and a stash could be uh, an injured guy, like a Colt Calhoun, for example, previous to the season, knowing he'll be back in a few weeks or so we hope. Uh, or uh, a longer-term guy like a you know Chris Sale or, or whomever, or uh, a prospect, the the Kirilovs, uh, Kellenics, Rushmans, uh, you know, one of those guys, Wander Franco's, Bobby Witts. For me, I feel like I can only take one of those guys because 
we know that every year that exactly what is happening now is going to end up happening. Like I'm looking at all my NFBC teams, even though I'm fairly risk averse and I try to avoid getting injury guys, my entire bench is littered with those red boxes of, of guys on the IL. So I want to avoid that as is. And it just really crushes your flexibility to be able to play uh, players in your starting lineup and not take zero. So I think it's, it's really, you know, we really need to be careful on those, those, those dead spots and also depends on the on your league format. Like for example, on a twelve teamer, I personally don't know or think there's any reason to carry like a Wander Franco there, for example, on your reserve because you're going to need that roster spot. Who knows how long he's going to it's going to be when he arrives, if when at all, and you know what's the impact going to be fantasy wise for you if it's just like you know the last month of the season and you wasted holding that roster spot for five months. Another debate that pops up all the time when people are talking about fab is between the advocates of spending aggressively early because they say, you know, you get the guy in in April, you've got all those extra weeks of performance, and if you get him in July, and the balanced guys who say you need to hold back, keep some money because it gives you more options as the season progresses and you might have the hammer when the crucial things start happening towards the end. Where do you stand on this? Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a balance of the two schools. I don't think there's a one specific approach. I think that's, that's better than the other. And I think every year is, is, uh, is case dependent. It's also team dependent. What's going on with your roster? Do you have, um, you know, specific holes? I think drafting for balance helps you avoid those type of situations. If you're doing a, a something where you're, you know, you're, you're, you do a, a you draft a team that's an unplanned punt, and all of a sudden you're low on categories. Yes, of course, early in Fab you're going to be chasing all those. You might be overly aggressive where you don't have to. Um, but there's a balance that you need to have for the year. So I think it's about taking it a week at a time, understanding sort of the magnitude of the type of players that are available. Like for me, I'm just you know maybe just you know uh, you know old man now yelling at cloud. I'm looking at. Julian Merriweather a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't in on that. Uh, maybe I didn't need a closer as badly that time, but I wasn't 100% convinced he was a guy. I mean, did I get lucky that I didn't bid on him and that he ended up getting hurt and, and being a non-factor for me and those people wasted their money and not me? You know, uh, sure, but maybe I wasted my money on Dolis this weekend or, or Graveman. Like, we really don't know. So what I do know is people do end up making mistakes and dropping things over the course of the season. And I want to be able to, to, to pounce on those when I need to. Uh, the other, the last factor is understanding the quality of something that is dropped early that you need to be aggressive on. Uh, I think an example of that with 2019 was, uh, was, was Lucas Giolito, I believe. And um, that was the perfect example. He wasn't drafted in a lot of 12ers or he was dropped in 15 teamers coming off. Basically he was the worst pitcher in baseball the previous season. But he looked good that spring. Those first couple starts were, were were great. And I remember picking him up for 30 bucks or something like that. And the rest was history. He was just a gem all year. And it's sometimes hard to identify who those are, who those players are. But over enough time with instinct, you kind of get a feel like, okay, I saw the same thing with Mats and Cor- Rodone this year. I'm like, okay, I need to jump in on these guys now. These guys, as long as they're healthy, could be helpful for me all year. So identifying the type of players that are going to be the true difference maker. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Vlad Sedler from FantasyGuru.com. And Vlad, uh, I like to wrap up these discussions with our experts by asking them for some boons and banes. These are players you think will help their fantasy teams. Those would be the boons. Or hurt them, the banes. Uh, maybe in honor of your weekly fabbing column at FantasyGuru.com, we'll maybe switch gears a little bit here and have you give us some boons and banes among this weekend's free agents. 
Let's start with the Boons. I know you have one hitter and two pitchers you think will provide top value as we look ahead in this fab weekend. Uh, who's your first one? Probably still available in some 15-teamers and definitely available in uh, a ton of 12-teamers. Uh, I think John Birdie, to be honest. And that's uh, because you've got Brian Anderson uh, on the IL. It sounds like Mattingly says he's going to play Birdie at some third base. And there's just more sort of room for him to play. And he's a guy that when he gets the playing time, he kind of runs with it. Uh, and literally, because he he does steal bases. And I know some people are really uh, low in that category. So I think he is uh, somebody that can... Um, that can help out uh, coming up. The schedule isn't pretty. Uh, he gets Milwaukee and Washington, and we know those teams have uh, some tough pitching. But uh, but hey, if he gets on base, probably going to run. And uh, let's get those two pitchers. Who do you think are Boone pitchers in this Fab weekend? Well, I think the most of the attention is going to go on uh, Ryan Weathers, somebody who uh, obviously uh, pedigree son uh, of a famous pitcher David. And uh, he just shut down the Dodgers. He's played in now what made two career starts, both at Dodger Stadium. Uh, high pedigree guy, 95 mile per hour fastball. And he looked just fantastic. So he's on everyone's radar at this point. This week, uh, this upcoming week, he's going to face the, uh, the Diamondbacks and the following week, the Pirates. So I think people are going to be in on him. Only 11% rostered in, in 12 teamers. The other pitcher there is uh, uh, not specifically exciting, but Jay Happ. Uh, for uh, Minnesota, and he's coming off two starts where he did not reach five innings, uh, didn't necessarily get blasted. They just ended up pulling him early. Um, he lines up for Cleveland this week and then possibly a two-start week with Texas and Detroit. So I think Jay Happ, somebody not particularly intriguing because he doesn't rack up the strikeouts, but usually with a good team behind him, puts himself in a good position for some wins. Vlad Sedler's boons for this fab weekend, John Birdie of Miami, Ryan Weathers of San Diego. We talked about him, Nick and I, a little earlier. I think it's a great pick. And Jay Happ of Minnesota. Let's move on to the Baines. Let's start again with a hitter. Who do you, th- who do you think is going to be a disappointment? Taylor Trammell, I think, is somebody in deeper leagues that people need to potentially consider cutting. Uh, and that's because he's uh, basically, he's hitting, he's just struggling right now. I mean, yeah, he's got a couple of homers. He's stolen a base. But he's also whiffing like crazy, like at a at a at a, hu- a horrific rate, uh, Keston horrific rate, forty two percent strikeout rate for Taylor Trammell. He's hitting one seventy six, uh, and they get some tough pitchers coming up, uh, Houston and the Angels there, um, bunch of bunch of lefties there. So I don't think Kalenic is coming up yet to take uh, his spot. So I think Trammell is going to be around for a little bit, but I feel like if he has a big weekend, everybody's going to pick him up and then end up being disappointed. And once again, you have a couple of pitchers you're trying to warn people off of. So one, uh, you might have people boycott um, listening any, to any more of this podcast because there are a bunch of Boyd's boys out there, they call them. But, uh, but Matt Boyd, man, I don't know. Um, I, I, I know people want to want for it to happen. Um, you know, looking at a guy with a, with a two, R, two ERA, low strikeouts so far, which is not what we're used to out of him. Uh, but a FIP, uh, XFIP near five, uh, XERA, and uh, some tough matchups coming up. He gets uh, the White Sox in Chicago. Um, the, that team's starting to get healthier. They got Tim Anderson back. And then he gets the uh, the devilish, um, I mean, not the Rays, but uh, the Red Sox. The Red Sox, man, they're, they're, this is not an offense you want to mess with, especially in Fenway. Um, not saying to outright drop a Boyd, because I don't think people are going to do that. Um, but I think people might end up playing him in these next couple weeks and uh, possibly get rocked. So he's one. And the other one I'm a little worried about is uh, Aaron Sanchez on San Francisco. 
He's stayed the course. He has not been blasted yet. He had a nice, decent start against Miami um, just the other day. Uh, but man, hit it, getting hit hard, 45% hard hit rate. Uh, velocity's down back from his days of throwing 94, 95. Now it's down to around 90, kind of reinvented himself. Uh, but I do think he's in some potential trouble or, you know, possibly Ross us uh, at some point. But he gets uh, against the Rockies this week. So people will probably end up picking him up for that start in deeper leagues. But then the following week, back against the Rockies, but in Coors with a two-step with them and the Padres. So no thanks. Vlad Sedler's Baines, Taylor Trammell of Seattle, Matt Boyd of Detroit, Aaron Sanchez of San Francisco. Geez, this has been great, Vlad. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Vlad Sedler. I'm at uh, Roto Gut on Twitter, and, and all my work can be found at uh, FantasyGuru.com. And uh, my my waiver wire fab bidding article uh, thing that I um, spend a lot of time on working to help people become better uh, fantasy bidders is uh, comes out every Saturday. So. Thank you so much, Patrick. I really appreciate it, and uh, it, it's a true honor to uh, to have come on your show today. Oh, no worries. It was great fun to have you and very interesting. I'm surprised you don't have a podcast yourself, just not enough time. Yeah, I did a show last year during the, the pandemic. I had a weekly uh, live stream where I basically had an all-star of guests, so uh, sort of the, the best of the best in the industry. I'd have them on for a show every week. In fact, I had uh, uh, you know Ron on a show. I had Brent and Ray uh, last year. So, uh, this year's schedule is tough. So I basically just do podcast appearances and, um, you know, just hang out on Twitter. Well, thank you very much for doing a podcast appearance here. It was a delight. And as I said, super interesting. Thanks a million for helping us out. And I hope I get to talk to you again, at least once more during the season. Sounds good. Thank you so much again, Patrick. Vlad Sedler is an analyst and writer at fantasyguru.com. We'll take a quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The object of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home! I'm going home! Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular HQ commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at San Francisco right-handed reliever Gregory Santos is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a pitcher with a ton of upside, according to the April 23, 2021 edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. Gifted with a tantalizing fastball-slider combination that can be downright vicious, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst, 21-year-old San Francisco Giants right-hander Gregory Santos 
has an arsenal that features a vicious triple-digit fastball, clocked as high as 101 miles per hour, complemented by a vicious wipeout slider, in addition to featuring a, well, perhaps less vicious, but improving changeup. According to an April 22nd NBC Sports Bay Area article by Alex Pavlovich, Gregory Santos has been consistently hitting 100 miles per hour at the alternate site and has been clocked as high as 101. Even so, San Francisco Giants manager Gabe Kapler aptly pointed out in the very same NBC Sports Bay Area article that obviously the velocity is encouraging, but all the velocity in the world doesn't help if you're not able to attack the strike zone. That's why 21-year-old San Francisco Giants reliever Gregory Santos, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, with a downright vicious fastball-slider combination who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, Gregory Santos pitched a perfect inning of relief in his Major League debut on April 22, 2021, striking out two. That's an incredible jump from Class A straight to the majors. Wow, at 21, that's a huge achievement. But it's also important to remember that the Boston Red Sox signed Gregory Santos as an international prospect on his 16th birthday back in 2015. In other words, Gregory Santos, at 21 years old, already has five years of professional baseball experience under his belt. Well, maybe four years because of minor league baseball's 2020 cancellation due to the coronavirus pandemic. Nevertheless, despite an underwhelming 1-5 record and eight starts for Class A Augusta in 2019, Gregory Santos did produce an exceptional 2.86 ERA with 26 punchouts in 34 innings pitched. Yet his low 18% strikeout rate, when combined with his low 6% walk rate and low 2.86 ERA, suggests a possible pitch-to-contact approach relying on his sinking fastball paired with a slider to produce ground ball outs. So on that basis, perhaps you too could rely on the well-grounded 21-year-old San Francisco Giants right-hander Gregory Santos as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about one good idea baseball could get from European soccer. If you're like me, and I hope you're not, you probably don't pay a lot of attention to the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans in the European soccer business. I mean, we're all a little interested in which corrupt World Cup voters are getting what bribes, but beyond that, who cares? Am I right? That said, I couldn't help noticing all the foo recently about a plan by some of the biggest and richest clubs in European soccer to start their own new Super League, and in the process to screw all their partners in their own national leagues out of as much money as they can. Now, I don't much care about this, as I said, especially when I read that the head of FIFA, the governing body of international soccer, responded to the news by saying, and I am not making this up, FIFA is an organization which is built on the true values of sport. Those values, if you consider the actions of former FIFA head Sepp Blatter and other FIFA leaders, start with count the money twice, especially when you're paying or receiving the bribes. 
Similarly, the president of UEFA, which is the governing body of European soccer, called the Super League executive plotters liars and snakes. And being the president of UEFA, he knows his liars and his snakes when he sees them, which he does every time he calls a meeting. I don't know if you remember a guy called Michel Platini, who was the head of UEFA when he got caught pocketing a $2 million bribe. And just to complete the story, the bribe was being paid by FIFA. So in general, European soccer is not worth thinking about except for the actual games, which are really good. But they do one thing that Major League Baseball should consider adopting, the pyramid system. This is not to be confused with the pyramid scheme, which many sports owners are very familiar with. In European national soccer leagues, the pyramid system places all the elite teams at the top, much like Major League Baseball. Level 1 of British soccer is the Premier League, with big city teams like Manchester United and Liverpool, and the big London clubs like Chelsea and Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur. Underneath that level, there are lesser leagues. The first few of those are full-time professional leagues in smaller cities. Then as you go down, you get the semi-pro leagues, some amateur leagues, and they get smaller and smaller towns, even villages. You might say this is kind of like baseball system with Major League Baseball at the top and then AAA, AA, single A down the line. And it is a lot like that, but there are some important differences. First, a lot of the teams, especially at the lower levels, are owned by broad swaths of their fans. Second, there's an annual national tournament that's open to all the teams in the top 10 levels. And every so often, one of those lesser teams will surprise a powerhouse. And it's really more amazing than a 16 seed beating a 1 seed in March Madness, only with more beer. And then there's the third difference, which is the one I think that Major League Baseball ought to look at. Relegation and promotion. In British soccer and most of the other European national leagues, a set number of teams that finish at the bottom of any league level are relegated downwards to the next lowest level, and the same number of teams at the top of each level move up into the next higher level. The various countries also add play-in games, qualifying games, little mini-tournaments, all kinds of other gimmicks and wrinkles designed to give the lower-rated teams a chance to climb up towards their version of the big leagues and a much bigger slice of the money that the Super League wanted all to itself. Now this relegation idea is something that North American baseball should immediately adopt. A very serious issue in our baseball is that teams can make gigantic potfuls of money by being bad, which creates a perverse incentive to, well, be bad. All 30 teams collect equal shares from a revenue pool in 2018, each team collected about $200 million. I chose 2018 because it was the last year whose financial numbers I could find in a grueling 24-second Google search. The numbers really are hard to know exactly because there are a lot of complicated adjustments that get made as the big team owners try to screw their partners in the lower teams and vice versa. But it's still a fast $200 million per team before a single game is won or lost or even played. So owners of some bad teams quickly learned that they could invest nothing in their rosters, lose a ton of games, and get paid anyway. It's no accident that one of the main movers and shakers of the Euro Super League idea was John Henry, who owns the Red Sox and also Liverpool. Another Super League proponent was Arsenal owner Stan Kroenke. You might know him from his ownership of the Los Angeles Rams, the Colorado Avalanche in the NHL, and the Denver Nuggets of the NBA. Now, imagine if, instead of getting paid to field a crappy team, 
a situation where stinking out the joint in Major League Baseball meant your franchise would be sent down to AAA and replaced by a hard-charging, well-run AAA team. Yes, under these rules, it would probably suck to be a fan of Baltimore or Detroit, Miami or Pittsburgh, but I'm guessing it's pretty much no fun now, except for the owners of those teams. Maybe things would change in those cities and others if the owners knew that losing a lot of games would kill the golden money goose. Now you might think I'm crazy to think this could ever happen, but I think if you polled the owners, they would have to be unanimously in favor, because they're all big believers in capitalism. They all believe in rugged individualism and keeping governments out of the way of business. Except when it comes time to get those antitrust exemptions, the highly favorable tax treatment on player depreciation, and of course stadium funding. But they all do believe strongly that rewards should be earned by merit and performance. Except when it comes to player salaries and running a team that wins fewer than 50 games and collects $200 million. Come to think of it, maybe they wouldn't be in favor of a relegation system. But I'm just saying, the downfall of the Euro Super League and the Euro Super League super grab for the Euros... That downfall started when outraged fans hit the streets, protesting and yelling and screaming and getting the attention of the politicians. And you could say the fans got the ball rolling, so to speak. The teams backed down right quick after that. So I wonder, is there a lesson here for baseball fans in Baltimore, Detroit, Miami, or Pittsburgh? Like I said, just saying. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'd also like to thank our special guest expert on this Friday full edition, Vlad Sedler, an analyst and writer at FantasyGuru.com. Vlad is a top-rate fantasy baseball player and a thoughtful and interesting analyst. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating, it really does help us find those new listeners. And that really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another Friday full edition featuring a special guest expert interview, as well as our usual great stuff, National League and American League news and those Baseball HQ commentaries. It's all coming up next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next Friday and so long for now. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.